0: Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. And starting out tonight, I wanted to talk about the TUC Book Readers Club. And you might be asking yourself, well, what, what is the TUC Book Readers Club? Well, you know, he, as the the Unexpected Cosmology is a full-time ministry for me. As the editor-in-chief and CEO and uh, head writer and uh, and YouTuber and podcaster and uh, main editor and what have you. Um, I I need people's help to keep this going, to keep the vision going, to keep the research going. And if you guys uh, do enjoy uh, the research that I have put forward and looking at all the extra biblical books and you know all the discussion points and so on and so forth, getting your your help, uh, ministry partners is much appreciated. Now, I've tried to figure out ways to make this fun and. What we have launched here is a monthly book reading club, where every single month I will be sending out a new book to any members. Uh, there will be a hardbound; it will be, uh, you know, the, the 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 latest release we have. And let lo- let me go ahead and just read what I have here. So this is called announcing the TUC Book Readers Club. Oh, and the 2023 conference coming up. The Unexpected Cosmology is a full time ministry focus upon yahuwah the most high elohim of yashorel as well as yahusha hamashiach growing in knowledge and wisdom through weekly studies in the torah and rarely read scripture and i should add here i say it all the time that uh, what i just put there is my um my i guess key verse uh revelation fourteen twelve, which talks about the the set apart the patience of the set apart,s parts and those who um, make it to the end or those that keep the father's commands as well as the testimony of Yehusha Hamashiach. We also seek to explore, expose the lies of Hasatan and wake people up from our controllers through a wide range of truth or topics. Hopefully you guys have seen that, that, you know, I, uh, I write papers on all sorts of hoaxes, everything from, you know, recently was Jim Morrison and vanilla ice to the Titanic and, you know, talked about, um, you know, uh, polio. I've talked about AIDS. I've talked about all sorts of stuff. The most prominent as of late being the mud flood resets and the millennial kingdom. If you've been around, then you'll know the topic is cutting edge research. TUC has been increasingly growing over the last few years. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of readers per year. Um, New people are discovering TUC on any given day and coming to the truth of Torah. And that, that really encourages me and excites me to keep doing this, to have so many people... Uh, telling me and writing me and emails and other things, going that they discovered the Torah uh, through my writings. They didn't even know it was a thing, and yeah, that really excites me. In past newsletters, I put out the call for financial assistance. One of the ways you can consider partnering with the ministry is by joining the brand new TUC Book Readers Club, and I put a link there uh, that goes to the sign up. As a member of the TUC Book Readers Club, you'll receive a new hardbound book every single month giving you tangible research which you can hold in your hands. The latest releases as well, I plan to send them out to the members first before we put them into the store. If there are no premieres on any given month, then a catalog book will be selected. Right now we have like 18 books up. Also back catalog books that you'd very much like to get your hands on rather than recent releases can be accommodated if you're a member. And it it costs $50 a month. So that helps to support the ministry as well as, as, you know, get a new book each month. The first book will be released to TUC members on December 1st. And here are some of the upcoming projects which you can expect. New editions and added volumes of Millennial Kingdom Plus Mud Flood. I have the vision of turning the book I turned out last May uh, not just into a second edition, but actually into three expanded books. I mean, right now, if I were to release it as a second edition, we're looking at like 900 pages. That that won't do. So we're going to be expanding this into a whole series of books. Uh, Another one I'm working on, The Seven Firmaments of Heaven. And then we have The Book of the Cave of Treasures, which Rebecca is finishing up as we speak. Uh, And uh, the next project is The Earth, Not a Globe Review, Volume 2. My hope is to... So please consider supporting us by joining. My hope is to have the first book in December be the Book of the Cave of Treasures. Um, And I will offer that first to anyone in the Book Readers Club. We've already had multiple people signing up for it. And uh, if that is, for whatever reason, not ready, and we have to push that back to January, then I'll be offering the Earth, Not a Globe Review Volume 1. because That's important to get out, because we will be releasing Volume 2 in the spring. So something to consider for everyone. If you scroll a little bit further down in this article that I'm reading from, we see the 2023 conference announcement, and it's happening. I, uh, I actually, <laughs> I've actually, turned down conferences to speak at in the past, but uh, apparently I'm going to this one. It's happening. It's been announced. Zin Garcia was kind enough to ask me to speak at the upcoming 2023 Sacred Word Revealed Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. The dates are May 26th through 28th, and I'm going. Somewhere on that wall of fine presenters is my mug but I'm not telling you which one I like to play hard to get. And so you will have to try your best and find me. My arrival is predicated upon me speaking exclusively on the millennial kingdom plus mud floods subject. That's what Zen has asked me to present. And I, you know, I, I'm not coming, I'm not going there with any desire to step on any toes or anything like that. I'm just happy to speak on what he has asked me to speak on. And that's it. Uh, and it, which has been the the MK, a mud flood subject, has, as you know, has been plastered all over TUC over the last few years. I hope to see my, my readers there. So I hope to see some people from this group. And, um, if you guys want to come out to Atlanta, May 26th through 28th, uh, once Zen and Company release the official schedule, I plan on scheduling a TUC meetup. So do stay tuned on that. And, um, I don't want to do it now because I don't want to interfere with their schedule you see i want to find out what the the whole lineup of speakers looks like and then i'll um we'll, we'll plan up a meetup for everyone who is in the tuc community either on youtube land podcast or here uh or even reads the, the website we'll have a meetup um there of course we see uh if you scroll down a little bit more i'm going to be putting miss rivka into all my newsletters i think because she's so adorable and i can't get enough of her pictures so and then but one more thing i want to talk about tonight we see rebecca um has joined the tuc family in my last newsletter i made mention of rebecca ogold without ever giving a photo reveal that's the her her professional name Well, here she is. And I have put her picture in in here, the lovely Rebecca. And Rebecca came to TUC during the summer of 2021 after following the breadcrumb trail from Rob Skiba and Nephilim research and soon thereafter began following the Torah. She has been an enormous help to the TUC ministry ever since that time editing books for publication, as well as running the podcast and and administering the TUC community, among other tasks. Um, The Earth, Not a Globe Review, Volume 1, and The Legends of the Jews, Volumes 1 through 4, would not have happened without her. And uh, she is, you know, as as part of this mission, she is getting paid to do this work. So, uh, again, I couldn't do the sheer amount of stuff I'm doing without her help. And one more thing we see here before getting to my presentation tonight we see in the new articles archives and this is really important because people are i have a dizzying amount of work out there it you know years worth hundreds and hundreds of articles and people are trying to look for my stuff and they're like i can't find it where amongst all your stuff where is it and i understand that i get it and so i have a page now on my my website—it's on the top bar. It's called the Archives. You can go in there, and I basically am taking all my PDF files and I'm putting them under categories. And here you go—just download them. Just there you. Go. And every single time I do updates, which you can find on the front page of Cosmology, those PDF files get updated as well. And unfortunately, at this point, I might have like forty to fifty PDF files up there. Um, you know, and, and some of those might be you know hundred pages each. But that doesn't come close to representing all my work. And it's a big process turning all my articles into PDF files. And that's it's going to take a long time to do. But um, it's a good start, nonetheless. That's what I have up there. All right. So tonight starting out, I'm going to be talking about the 1893 Chicago World Fair was a hoax. I gave this presentation last December, I think it was. And ever since that time, I have been people emailing me. I've, I've had people emailing me or texting me or contacting me and saying, but Noel, haven't you seen the construction photos? It proves that they really did build the Chicago World Fair when they did. Now, I understand that when it came to the whole Tartarian research, and I hope everyone understands who is listening, that I am not a Tartarian. I do not take to the Tartarian theory. I do not believe that Tartaria, Tartaria was ever the epicenter of the world, um, but there there was a good three or four years of a honeymoon stage, much longer than we ever got with Flat Earth, before the the gatekeepers started showing up and you know harassing the narrative and trying to debunk it and so on and so forth. And that is obviously happening now, and I expect this next year to really heat up. Uh, the more it goes mainstream, the more people start hearing about it, it's going to be bringing people trying to debunk the whole thing. And I, I like the gatekeepers and I like the shills in the same way I like an atheist and that they, they keep me on my toes. They keep me sharp and, you know, they, they try to bring out their best arguments and um, you know, they, that, that causes that should cause all of us to not be lazy in our research and to really back up what we're saying. I'm going to be reading tonight from page 15 and this is going to be you know just several pages i'm not going to be going through this whole entire um, 86 page document again this is called the construction photos and so i'll just be going through some of the construction photos that has been sent my way uh over the last year and we'll be dissecting those here we go every so often somebody sends me a construction photo of the 1893 chicago exposition wondering if i'd seen them and also now that i've been set straight Won't this insanity please come to an end? You should know, then, that there are side effects to my steady red pill diet, which includes not being allowed to stop talking about it. Not until every rock is turned and question answered. Indeed, there are construction photos. I have seen them, and they're cringeworthy, to say the least. Do you really think there wouldn't be construction photos, that is? I decided to include... Include a picture of Margaret Hamilton, a computer scientist from MIT, to make a point. She is posing with the guidance software, which she and her team of nerds developed that supposedly sent three Apollo astronauts to the moon and back in 1969 to make the entire story credible. Simply adorable. Look at that stack of books, why don't you? They're all codes and numbers. Incredible. I guess it's true, then, all of it. And we did go to the moon. I was wrong about everything. You are avoiding the inevitable again, you tell me. No, I'm not. I'm simply letting you know the great links our controllers will go to so as to succeed at their lies. The space race began in 1955. That's a whopping 14 years of photo and video documentation, all hell bent on perpetrating a lie. I mean, think about that. They spent 15 years creating data and research for a lie there are pictures quote-unquote of globular earth from satellites in space y'all no not really that was sarcasm They're composite images and artistic renderings every last one of them the whole point to this is that um you know there are you can prove the you can prove the uh the apollo missions through all the data apparently and yet here i am saying that it's a hoax everyone listening believes it's a hoax i don't think there's probably anyone listening that thinks that we went to the moon in 1969 or in any of the apollo missions you guys see what i'm saying all right let's get going there you go your first construction photo read it and weep dreams do come true apparently can't say i'm holding back either as i see it we are still left with only two possibilities either they built the columbian exposition of popsicle sticks and glue as this photo claims or they're lying i have seen enough over the years to lead me towards the later view that they are indeed not being honest about what's going on for all i know this is a composite image it's difficult to tell, but that very well may be a matte painting as well. The newspaper boys were all over its publicity, and they had their very own art departments. You'll see some of what that is. As we shall come to find, some artists were more reliable than others. Nobody is holding a gun to your head, though. You are free to make up your own mind on the matter. There are others. Well, let's have a look at them, shall we? And before I get too deep into this, I'll point out that if you recall this presentation I gave, I showed the the fire events when the tower burnt down and I was shocked looking at those photos for the first time. No one had ever told me that was a hoax. And I'm like, these are cartoons. This isn't even real. Well, the construction photos aren't that much better. Page 17. I decided to comb the Intel net for construction photos, and this was the first to crop up. You think the. Boys down at the lab would have upped their game by this point, and new negatives of Chilaga being built would be discovered at a garage sale in Modesto, only to be sold at auction for an unprecedented amount, all pocketed by the CIA, of course. But this is what we're given to work with. Perhaps this is a photo of one structure or another being raised from the grand floor. Difficult to tell, but it is still, at best, a composite. Those aren't even real construction workers. They're cartoons. Had they left out the stick figures, I might have been convinced. Did the photographer arrive at lunchtime or something, or did the newspaper send down a columnist from the funny pages? It's not just a fluke either. We are shown more photos of the same building, but at different stages of construction, telling us that days or weeks have passed. Somebody has gone to Great links to document the raising of the exhibition only to scribble in more stick figures. Page 18. That's 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 so neat of the photographer to wait around and capture the weary construction workers clocking out for the day, probably on their way to the pub for a pint. Look at all those people. There must be a hunt, there must be hundreds of them. And is that a unicorn? Wow. Even in its earlier planning stages, Chicago was quite the expedition. I think my favorite part, though, is the artist's emphasis on the clouds. Really, in this present age or of weather modification, they simply don't make clouds like that anymore. The way they reach down from the heavens so as to shroud chalaga in a mystical embrace. And as you can tell, I'm being sarcastic because that's yet another cartoon of the to prove the sheer amounts of construction workers showing up at the job apparently throngs of people were invited to watch the exposition's construction so as to ensure that skeptics such as myself wouldn't have a leg to stand upon these photos just keep getting better and better if i do say so myself more cartoons the cartoons of people watching the construction finally a real photograph of real people what are they doing exactly? We are told they're standing around in a field waiting for the Colombian exposition to be built. One man even appears to be pulling a watch from his waistcoat, wondering how much time this will take. I see no buildings. Do you? I keep looking for them, though. They might just be in a random field for all I know. I really don't know. And then we see another composite right here. The Wikipedia is flinging this one as legitimate, interestingly enough. On first glance, the foreground looks very much as a real picture should. But then the buildings in the background are clearly a matte painting. A few of the trees on the right may very well be actual living trees. But then quite suddenly, they transform into sketches of trees. The thing is, it's not even a convincing picture as construction goes. And yet somebody went to great lengths to manipulate the masses. Here are four more construction photos for your consideration, one of which is a doodle. I will leave it up to you to flex your investigative muscles and unmask it for Scooby and the gang. A year or so ago, as of this writing, I was giving a presentation on Chicago's fakery, and somebody decided to photobomb me with the two top pictures as proof of my fallacy. Did he show the other dozen fake photos to demonstrate his point? No. He simply dropped those few which are deemed to be the most believable, if any of this is to be believed. As far as I'm concerned, they are model miniatures, and in fact, the overbearing stench of propaganda associated with the Columbian Exposition leads me to conclude that nothing is as meets the eye. Now, that's all I wanted to read off that, and I just wanted to show an update on this paper. There are actually a lot of updates that I haven't included in recordings, and I put this at the beginning of the paper so that, uh, you know, when you're digging into the Chicago World Fair, you can see the construction photos first. There it is. All right. The second thing I wanted to go over tonight is my recent paper on the Star Force of the Millennial Kingdom. Josh, hopefully you have that pulled up. I'll assume you do. And uh, of course, I dropped this in the room, everybody, just so um, if you're looking for it. It's pinned in there. Star Force of the Millennial Kingdom by Noel Joshua Hadley. And I didn't put a publication date on this, which is a little surprising. Uh, this is actually far from incomplete. Obviously, there are many star forts all over the world. I wasn't able to cover them all. I wanted to cover everything in Florida. Um, I did not talk in here about um, uh, dry, ter- dry tortugas uh, down in the Florida Keys. Uh, it's called Fort Jefferson. I didn't talk about that when I wanted to, but there's still plenty of material here. Starting on page three. Imagine my disappointment, having written several pages only to realize that not a single picture of Starforts was yet offered. That was a little embarrassing. I had to go back and reformat this whole thing. I have now included three in the introduction and expect there to be more. The result is that I had to reformat everything. What a headache. White people problems, I know. Probably. (laughs) Uh, I won't go there. Had I not gone through with the reformatting, though, you would have had little choice but to struggle through the confusion, not knowing what a star fort looks like, perhaps even become lost to despair in the post-mud flood blues, and we can't have that. These should at least whet your appetite for the time being. They derive from the Florida Keys, the Netherlands, and Italy in that clockwork order. I suggest you take a good look at them now, though there is a very good chance we will return for a closer peek in the pages ahead. Here are two more from Russia and Portugal. There is something like 319 Bastion forts on the Earth, and I have a theory on what many to most, if not all of them, were designed for. Wouldn't you like to know what it is? Here's your first hint. Their true purpose happens to be the opposites of war. If the Orwellian narrative is to be dismantled brick for brick on this one, then you will need to think in terms of the industries of Shalom moving forwards. Be patient. I will give you reason to share the same conclusions. That's not what the fact checkers would have us believe, though. Therefore, I decided to do them a favor and fact check myself, silly, before getting too far into this. Here is the link to the Wikipedia article, Bastion Forts. Click it, have fun, read it at your own will. Perhaps I will even starve off the people in the process, but probably not. Well, here you go. And then we read uh, about a, a Bastion fort from that article. As you can see, the invention of gunpowder plays a crucial role in the evolution of these fortifications. I certainly can't say I've read every official article available, but I would imagine they nearly all begin the same way, with gunpowder. And as a result of gunpowder, you know, because of, well, gunpowder. There is no doubt in my mind that gunpowder and the Battlefield cannon had much to do with their destruction. But that is not what their designers had in mind from the get-go. No way, no how. Had the architects had the architects of the military industrial complex actually set about to design the bastion forts we find across the motionless plain today, then they would have looked something like the droplet of water on the right, which says, I hate you. Of course, you can see there, the free, the three photos, the one says love. The other says, thank you. And the other, I hate you because nothing says I hate you more than gunpowder and the middle finger of a gun barrel pointed directly at your pineal gland. I will ask you then to compare the droplets of water on the left with the actual bastion forts, and we have a match. They were spoken into existence as a result of love and thank you, clearly not the blueprints of war. It was the life work of Dr. Masaru Imoto who ultimately brought the fraudulent Starfort narrative to my attention, if only by accident. All it took was studying droplets of water. Using magnetic resonance analysis technology and high-speed photographs, Emoto was repeatedly capable of demonstrating how the molecular structure in water transforms when it is exposed to human interaction, and not simply in our words either. Our very thoughts, sounds, and intentions impact, even alter, the physical realm around us. Just stop and ponder that. I mean, I have... I've been thinking about this for weeks on end now, and just when I walk down the streets, I, I just you know the, the, even the thoughts I think, I think probably manifest the, the reality of the world around us. And um, you know, I just try to to praise Yah and say things of that nature that are that express his glory to just you know, bless the, the angels around me, the world around me, nature around me, and I want to create those beautiful shapes, not just in the world around me, but in my own, my own DNA, my blood, the, the water in my body. You know, I want to form beautiful shapes and not ugly shapes. The resulting images are sometimes referred to as water consciousness. And really, I can't think of a better description. Tell me, which of these looks like a star fort? Peace does. Truth does. Wisdom and thank you as well. But more than any of the others is eternal. That is a star for if ever I've seen one. Strange messages for warmongers to be sending. Wouldn't you agree? It's certainly what I'm agreeing to. Whenever and wherever water is be- exposed to loving, benevolent, and compassionate human interaction, aesthetically pleasing molecular formations materialize in the physical realm. Contrarily, water which is exposed to fearful human interactions results in the disfigured patterns shown. Is that the eye of Sauron I'm detecting in the evil droplet? More like the eye of Horus. Emato's research really shouldn't surprise anyone, as there are only two prime emotions love and fear. Pick any other human emotion which you might experience on any given day. Supposedly, there are 27 uh emotions presently pinpointed by the people in lab coats i've taken the time to list them for you admiration adoration aesthetic appreciation amusement anger anxiety awe awkwardness boredom calmness confusion craving disgust empathetic pain um, entrancement, excitement fear horror interest joy nostalgia relief romance sadness satisfaction sexual desire and surprise well, they all stem from one or the other, love and fear. Not that I'm trying to play the shrink while you give this a read uh, in, your, in your chase lounge. It's what we're told in scripture. You can read it right here. This comes from First John. Whosoever shall confess that Yahushua is the son of Elohim, Elohim dwells in him, and he is he in Elohim. And we have known and believed the love that Elohim has to us. Elohim is love, and he that dwell in love dwells in Elohim. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torments. He that fears is not made perfect in love. So there is no love in fear, because fear is the absence of love. Should fear have Played a part in the blueprint design work, seeing as how their intended purpose was war. It then explain to me again how they took on the aesthetically pleasing molecular formations of the stars in the firmament above to frustrate gunpowder. I'm having a difficult time buying this. It would take a daily pharmaceutical subscription of blue pills to accept their premise. What is their premise again? I will show you. Jumping a few paragraphs down in the Wikipedia article, and we read the following. Bastien fortifications were further developed in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, primarily in response to the French invasion of the Italian peninsula. The French army was equipped with new cannon and bombards that were easily able to destroy traditional fortifications built in the Middle Ages. Star forts were employed by Michelangelo in the defensive earthwork of Florence and refined in the 16th century by these other two individuals. The design spread out of Italy in the 1530s and 1540s. Bastion fortifications were developed in the 15th and 16th centuries, primarily as a response to the French invasion of Italy. The French were arriving with newly designed cannons capable of destroying medieval fortifications, and the Italians were screwed. Don't forget about the gunpowder, though. Were these military fortresses blowing dandelions rather than bullets in their invading armies? Perhaps they were throwing the book at them, the good book. Because all I'm seeing in the Starforts design is love. Reading the first architect, oh, regarding the first architect, we are given a name. There he is again. The man primarily responsible is Michelangelo. How did I miss out on this when writing my Michelangelo, the divine paper? Why has nobody brought this to my attention? Seriously, must I do all, the, all of this research myself? Apparently so. Not that I'm complaining or anything, all the more reason to suspect that he wasn't even mortal, given this recent turn of information. A breatharian, most likely. Will the real Michelangelo please stand up? You'll have to revert, refer to my paper on the divine and all that he supposedly accomplished. Rather than being sadistic and making you wait until the end, I'll go ahead and lay my theory out now. They were quarantine cities. Yes, you heard me the first time. Quarantine health centers a place where the sick and the unclean might get well, but also where everybody knew your name. I will admit it's just a working theory, but seeing as how the kingdom of the Messiah is our framework and Torah would have been the law of the land, then I have yet to hear of something better. And so here is where I'm pulling my thoughts from. This comes from Leviticus 13, 46. All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone without the camp, shall his habitation be. Sickness and disease existed during the Millennial Kingdom. The results would be due either to transgressing the Torah or outright rebellion against the high priest and King Yahusha. Even death was a part of it, and so instructions such as what is read in Leviticus 13 would very much apply to the mortals of that epoch. Mind you, it was the pre-stated purpose in Revelation to heal the nations. And it says so right here. We've been over this before as, uh, already as a group. Revelation 22:2 says, In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bore 12 manners of fruit and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The scene involves new Yerushalayim. You will probably ask me why the sick would rather go to a star fort when the tree of life is at their disposal, well, the explanation is an easy one. Whether they desire to eat from the fruits of the tree is irrelevant when, in fact, the sick or the sinner is never allowed there into New Jerusalem. Into new Tell me, have you eaten from the tree of life? Hmm? The fact that New Jerusalem will never descend to the earth until sin and death are done away with once and for all, has already been covered in another paper of mine. It arrives only after death is thrown into the lake of fire, not before. Clearly, the scene is in heaven, then. It is the role of the kings and the priests to walk in the light of it and then represent Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, here upon the earth, which is why I believe this Michelangelo person to be one of them. As quarantine healing centers, Star forts were designed to act as vibrational frequency ecosystems, at least that's the theory, each of which were intended to provide a sense of restored harmony for the individual, as well as the community, which he hoped to rejoin. Music undoubtedly had a part to play in it. They would have been their very own self-contained environment, representing a microcosm of the universe on a metaphysical level. I have personally had the opportunity to explore several of them here in America, most, mostly Florida. As a voluntarily and yearly part-time resident of the Sunshine State, which I just happened to arrive here for my winter in Florida a couple days ago, and as I say, mostly during the winter months, I believe I have earned my keep in having an opinion on them. And so, having wandered the darkened corridors of their crumbling infrastructure, I reject the military origins explanation and deem them to have been envisioned as quarantine health centers, perhaps given the time. We will take a closer look at each one of Florida's star forts and then compare them with what Europe has to offer. Well, let's get to it then. On page 11, if you need caught up, this is Fort Pickens. And Fort Pickens is right across the harbor from another fort. And I went to this Fort Fort Barrancas, years ago. And I took a lot of photos that I was trying to dig up. I wanted to go back there, but now because of the... Uh, the pandemic, it, it's on, it sits on a Air Force, uh, no, a, a Navy base. That's where the um, the Blue Angels originate from. And you see them flying all over there. And it, it's getting on a military base is not easy now in the current environment. They've really locked it down. So I wasn't able to get back there. Bummer. But anyways, back to Fort Pickens. From high above, you can see just how badly Fort Pickens and Pensacola has fallen into disrepair. Only the fringe in the bottom right-southwest corner remains intact, whereas the northwest wall is completely missing on the left. So much destruction, despite Fort Pickens never having once been bombarded or attacked. Sure, it's a relic of the American Civil War, but the official narrative has it in Union hands for the entirety of the conflict. The military didn't do that. Destroyed, yes, but created, no. Again, theoretically. Like practically every other star fort in North America, Pickens was gutted out and disfigured by the Federalists in order to stake a claim in his story. Perhaps the star fort we know today as Pickens originally looks something closer to this. As you can see, the illustration, the, not the illustration, the picture. I searched through dozens of star forts for something which might better represent Pickens as she once was. And I believe we have a close match. The top of its walls would have sponsored grass or shrubbery rather than cannons. Landscaping intended to complement the surrounding seaside mural. Inside, we would have an entire city, sponsored, of course, by the master's house in the center. Perhaps it was a priest who lived there, I don't know. Kronborg Castle uh, uh, Heisingar in Denmark is another contender for the original look of Pickens in Florida. And if so, the government couldn't have that. Best to take a wrecking ball to the inwards and gut out the evidence. How Cronberg Castle plays into the gunpowder narrative is beyond me. Seems like a cannonball-sized hole or two would have made a wreck of the tower decor. But who am I to judge? Were the people with the mortar and the heavy artillery expected to aim no higher than 20 feet so that the grassy knobs of the star fort could cushion the blow rather than the castle? Help me understand this. There is a moat surrounding the bastion, and it wasn't to keep the dragon out. No, everything before us was designed so as to leverage water to produce a magnetic frequency, which would then be absorbed by the infrastructure, resulting in health and happiness for those contained within its walls. Nothing about Kronberg Castle speaks of war to me. I mean, seriously, guys. Like, if if they built that castle, and then they're like, let's put a star fort around this. Like, I, 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 I guess I just don't get it. I don't get how the cannonball narrative, how they couldn't just smash cannonballs into this from, from the ocean, from ships. But again, whatever. Fort, uh, if I can pronounce this, Bortange, or Bortange in the Netherlands posts a sprawling village within the confines of its sacred geometry. From down below, they may have us fooled into the military narrative. But gazing upon Bortange from above as the Elohim in the firmament might, the prime emotion associated with war melts away. One can easily imagine the joy and harmony which its villagers would have felt when this energy euphoria was put to its intended use. I am showing you these examples to illustrate as well as contrast the dedicated destruction brought upon the star forts in America so as to scrub his story from our knowledge and create the false new world narrative. I think we're on page 14. Getting back to Fort Pickens, here is the inner wall. So these are pictures I took on my trip. If nobody set up any signs to explain to me its official history of hatred and violence, I would get the impression that we are staring upon aqueducts or archways intended for natural amphitheaters of some sort. They also, you know, resemble the horseshoe magnet which we saw with the, the cathedrals and castles of the Malino Kingdom. Anyways, you know, for music and vibrations and the health of humanity and such. It was a foggy morning when I took this photo, but you can see where it's blown to bits. They tell us the missing wall is the result of a fire wreaking havoc upon a gunpowder magazine in eighteen ninety nine. You see gunpowder again. The explosion story has eight thousand pounds of gunpowder showering debris across Pensacola Bay. It's all we have to go by, seeing as how the military just so happened to have an oops moment and nobody thought to document the demolition. Nevertheless, we do see it destroyed. So it was destroyed in one way or another, and I don't see a reason to deny that story. Pickens' quad fares no better, seeing as how it has been gutted of everything but the grass. There are a couple of hideously ugly black buildings upraised there. Get back a few pages to the aerial photo and you will see precisely what I'm talking about. Those two I can buy. They are undeniable monuments to the First World War and precisely the sort of infrastructure the military would build. All right, then we see its history here on the Wikipedia. Pickens was built in 1829, but wasn't even completed until 1834, making it less than two centuries old. I have explored Pickens twice now as of this writing, and I think you will come to find that it looks far older than the provided timestamp. It says Pickens was designed by Baron Simon Bernard, a French engineer. How adorable. That's how they explain the European antiquities to be discovered in America. If something seems out of place, blame the French, or I guess the Italians, or the Germans. This is the same individual's who designed other star forts across the great land of ours, apparently. Fort Morgan in Alabama is one of them. Have you seen a picture of Morgan? Wowzers. If not, no worries. Here is an aerial photo of Fort Morgan. What is left of it, anyways? Baron Simon Bernard must have been a fan of sacred geometry, as well as human love when paired with the molecular structure of water. You will tell me there is far more remaining than with Pickens, which is true. But then look at the destruction of Morgan during the Civil War. There is a flag in the background displaying the stars and the stripes, telling us that the people representing the Federal Reserve have arrived. What are we looking at here? Because that's not the outer wall. The entire structure has either been blown up or burned out. Boys with toys, I guess. The slave labor aspect, which they immediately tell every Pickens visitor in uh, play cards, makes for colorful st- storytelling, as well as the 21.4 five million bricks manufactured manufactured at that time for its construction but then how many slaves were required to lay down that many i wonder quite a few i again i shouldn't wonder local landowners would have had to lend their property out for payments as the united states army corps of engineers did not have a slave division that i'm aware of if they did then i don't know about it somebody show me maybe they really did maybe they just brought the the, the federal government just brought slaves around with them everywhere as part of their, uh, their uh, fort building agenda. And so which slave owners lent them out? Also, where did these slaves learn the masonry trade? Was there a school in France or Italy where slave owners sent them to and under whom did they study? I would like to know. We are simply told by the modern historians how this aspect of slavery has been hidden from us in the American history books. Gee, do you think, were they capable of scrubbing the architecture and masonry slave schools as well? And if so, then what else are they hiding? And I, I looked this up. People, people are just kind of baffled because they're actually going with this thing that the, the slaves built these. And so there are slave historians out there going, well, I guess they built them. They, the slaves were more advanced than we were led to believe. William H. Chase supervised its construction. His Wikipedia article describes him as a plantation owner and a slave owner, as well as a banker who married into the Matthews family. Perhaps we should ask him. He was also the president of the Alabama and Florida Railroad Company. Seems like everybody connected with one railroad company or another in the 19th century were undeniably shady. I can't even begin to tell you how many passages were either covered up or resized so as to fit with the war narrative. The way the rooms and hallways narrow into hobbit-like tunnels, zigzags, and dead ends, it seems illogical that it was designed with military defense in mind. Here, at least, after blocking up one such passage, they constructed a stairway leading downwards as an afterthought. You can totally tell where they added new bricks to the ancient bricks as well. And just in case you're wondering, those are my two sons there exploring it with me. Having taken the baits and descending the staircase, we are offered more funny business. There is yet another torn out wall as well as a bricked in staircase, which would take us to a lower unknown depth. What other contributions do you see in this photo? There are probably many. The differences between the original architect's intents and military intervention are indeed glaring. Nearly every room is like this. There are gutted walls and patched over walls, bricked in floors, and and narrowed passageways. It's just so bizarre the way, whole way they apparently built this right before the Civil War, and they're like, uh, the original architects did such a terrible job at this that served no purpose whatsoever for war that we have to redesign the entire thing from within. And they weren't improving on it. They were just like knocking out walls and covering up walls, as you can see. It just the whole thing is so bizarre. Fort Pickens was apparently far too airy for them. It might as well be said. If Fort Pickens was constructed by slave labor in the whereabouts of 1840, as they claim, then it was a terrible design by an equally terrible designer, because the military quickly went about restructuring everything, seeing as how the purpose of a Star-Fort ultimately confused the platoon sergeant, and when the crap hit the fan, the Civil War, its layout simply didn't work. What were they thinking? Top Brass and D.C. were apparently going... What our forts need is more Michelangelo, only to retract their story a decade or two later. And then the the picture there is on the bottom of page 17 that I'm commenting on. Look at this archway. The closer you approach to its opening, the newer the bricks become. It is difficult to tell the varying age of the bricks in this photo. Really, I am doing you a disservice when they should be expandable page-sized centerfolds. Just know that there are several layers to them, almost like geological columns. I mean, you could see where like the the further out it gets, the bricks get older and older and older. And, you know, they just kept closing it in, closing it in, closing it in with newer bricks and newer bricks and newer bricks. And here the support beam is added. But then again, so is the Brickton wall, telling us that the original function of this star fort was no longer desired and in so little time. The military designer must have been a klutz. None of his designs were right because they set about correcting them at every turn. The home reimagining gives it a dark, claustrophobic feel, indi- indicative of war's prime emotion, whereas the original design was airier and open. Tell me, does this look 200 years old to you, the, the bricks? Surely the the facade could... <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. I'm sorry. The, the wall could use a good scrubbing. A power wash would do wonders. But even still, the brick is worn. It looks ancient. There are medieval ruins throughout Europe in better health. The windows were originally larger as well, all around. You can see my, my sons there in one of the closed-off arch windows. The newer bricks are unavoidable a consistent theme across the star fort. The original designer apparently didn't take cannon fire into account when constructing his gunpowder fort. And so another officer had to come along and give the orders to brick them in because of fear, you know. And then look what we see on the outside of the star fort. Well, that's awkward. Entire doors and windows have been bricked in along the outer wall. I guess that's what happens when the original builders were welcoming people in, and then somewhere along the way, the inheritors were, oh, I don't know, attempting to keep people out. The awkwardness abounds at Fort Pickens, like this doorway on page 20. Compare its opening with the size and width of the staircase. It's probably only three feet tall. Were they envisioning a shipload of hobbits right out of basic training? Somebody thought it would be a neat idea to make the privates hunch upon their heels and then take a leap several feet down while carrying the gunpowder. That's the military's way of keeping everyone on their toes during wartime, I suppose. Even the staircase was probably added later. And then I've got a bunch of pictures here. I, I had so many pictures, I couldn't add them all. Page 21, if I were in the Mediterranean and somebody told me one Caesar or another walked through these very halls, then I would have believed the report. That's how old Fort Pickens looks and feels to the explorer. There are wood cabins in the Smoky Mountains built about the same time or earlier, actually, as Pickens and better preserved. Ah, that's more like it purportedly young brick that I can get behind. They tell us this brick building was built in 1907, less than a hundred years after the cornerstone was laid in Pickens, far less than a hundred years. I mean, we're talking like what, 60 years, 70 years. It is still on the Pickens compound, mind you, and built before the first and second world wars. It's so shiny and polished exactly as I would expect a brick. Ironically, The brick looks nearly identical to the massive reworking within Pickens. All those walls and doorways needing covered. And another thing, the door. That's the sort of door which I would imagine of a 19th or early 20th century military operation. You could swing those bad boys open and allow the horse and carriage to load up on the ammunition. It's the little details. Apparently, nobody in the military industrial complex thought about that sort of thing until 1907. All right, the next section here we see on page 22, star forts or star cities across the realm. The Michelangelo explanation is bonk. Look, if a man named Michelangelo did happen to design the original Bastion forts, which in turn inspired hundreds of other star fortifications across our realm, then the evidence will show that he ripped off a worldwide Bastion power grid that had already existed centuries before. Medieval cities were shaped by the same sacred geometry, but history has failed to tell us about it. Michelangelo invented nothing. Plagiarized, maybe, but that's assuming he sketched the first blueprints to begin with. They're everywhere, Bastion Fort cities. The sheer number of them are awe inspiring. I will show you a baker's dozen examples in a moment. Before I do, though, we should break for another Bible lesson. Because the cities themselves are important to the Millennial Kingdom narrative. See for yourself. This comes from Ooh, Amos. I don't get to quote from Amos very often, probably because it's such a short book. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Yasharim, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit thereof. There is far more happening in this short passage than the current topic allows for. First and foremost, the context has yasharel or the, the children of yasharel being brought out of captivity. Before anyone harps on the historical land of yasharel being the destination of her restored people, I have already shown that to be untrue, at least in my opinion. The ten tribes of yasharel were never returned to the prior land, nor was it rebuilt during the kingdom. No, they were given a completely different land for an inheritance. You can read about that in my Cities of the Millennial Kingdom paper under the section People of the Covenant, which we went over like a month or two ago in this group. I recommend reading the entire thing. Here is the short of it, though. Ephraim was established in the United Kingdom. If you did happen to read it, then you'll know the set-apart were granted cities to inhabit all across the realm, not just Britain. I mean, that included Italy, and it included Germany, France, uh, you name it. Which is what I wanted you to see in Amos 9.14. The rebuilding and inhabiting of waste cities is an important plot point to the reign of Yahushua HaMashiach upon the earth. It would only make sense that the priests of said kingdom would construct cities which advocated the spiritual as well as physical health of their inhabitants. I'm not sure who deserves the patent then for the Bastion design, but between you and me, uh, Mikael, uh, Michael, not Michelangelo, but Michael the Archangel, sounds far more reliable than the Italian sculptor of David's buttocks. Well, here are some of the city blueprints which I was able to track down for your consideration. And you could look at these later. Uh, here's some of the, the maps I pulled up. We see Milan, Geneva, Lille, Turin, Vienna, Luxembourg, Copenhagen, and Amsterdam. And that's all in clockwork order. Starfort cities, every last one of them. Aside from their familiar framework, a commonality can be found with their relationship to water. Sometimes there is a natural body. In other instances, channels have been irrigated. The relationship, however, between the energy harvested from the ether and water is undoubtedly important to their operational capabilities and then we see uh one two three four five six more maps here are several more copenhagen wait did i put copenhagen up there oh i did wait did i repeat copenhagen i don't know whatever you could uh i might have i'll have to look at that later yeah i did copenhagen dresden casal bayonne cologne and hamburg apparently i Really want to go to Copenhagen. I've never been. Recognize the names. So many places to explore. As of this writing, I haven't visited a single one of them. Perhaps that will change in the decades to come if Yah wills it. My wife is a Torino on her mother's side. If I could choose any one of these cities at this very moment, then I think I would like to wander the streets of the star city which her name bore, Turin, seeking out the remains of a far superior era. Last but certainly not least, Paris was a star city, and what a city. Indeed, Mrs. Hadley and I have roamed these streets while living in France, and here's what I can tell you about it. Despite the stench of idolatry littering her cathedrals and bridges, no doubt thanks to her her inheritors, and there's no doubt in my mind that those were added later, um, easily done, nobody was capable of preparing me for how beautiful she truly was. There is a saying about Paris. If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you. For Paris is a movable feast. Like so many other star cities, it is the Syene River which divides her grid. But then look at what takes center stage. Cathedral Notre Dame de Paris. I imagine the beauty of Paris might otherwise pale in comparison only to the resurrected saint who thought to rebuild her what names are responsible i wonder i haven't the faintest clue as i wasn't there but if i had to guess i would say it was a woman post edit i checked the patron saint of paris is uh, genevieve it is said that she led a prayer marathon in the year 451 which was single-handedly responsible for diverting attila the hun away from the city All right, well, that being said, let's go ahead and we're going to move on tonight to the Aramaic Targum. Michael, are you with me?
1: Shabbat shalom, Emma. Can you hear me?
0: I can hear you. Shabbat shalom. Glad you're here. I'm always excited to hear the commentary that it sounds like you were on fire this week because I was talking to Michael and he's like, we're going to do Genesis 18 and 19. And I'm like, no, (laughs) no, we're not, because I only have information on I was only able to get research on Genesis chapter 18 this week. So. um, What I'm going to do is, Michael, I'm going to hand it over to you. Let's get started. Why don't you go ahead and read. Chapter 18, but also just go straight into commentary. Um, I, I've you know, been talking the last hour, so take it away, and then I'll jump in afterwards.
1: All right. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Uh, this is Bostonian Targum Chapter 18 Genesis. So if Josh has the link, we will start. Um, and the glory of the Lord was revealed to him in the Valley of Mamre, and he, being ill from the pain of circumcision, sat at the door of the tabernacle in the fervor or strength of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three angels in the resemblance of men were standing before him. Angels who had been sent from the necessity of three things, because it is not possible for a ministering angel to be sent for more than one purpose at a time. One then had come to make known to him that Sarah should bear a man-child. One had come to deliver Lot, and one to overthrow Sodom and Amorah. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the door of the tent and bowed himself on the earth. And he said, I beseech by the mercies that are before thee, Lord, if now I have found favor before thee, that the glory of thy Shekinah may not now ascend from my servant until I have set forth provisions under the tree. And I'll bring food of bread that you may strengthen your hearts and give thanks in the name of the word of the Lord. And afterwards pass on for therefore at the time of repast are you come and have turned aside to your servant to take food. And they said, Thou hast spoken well, do according to thy word. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah, and said to her, Hasten three measures of flour, meal, mix and make cakes. And unto the flock ran Abraham, and took a calf, tender and fat, and gave to a young man, and hastened to make prepared meats. He took rich cream and milk and the calf which the young man had made into prepared meats, and set before them, according to the way and conduct of the creatures of the world. And he served before them, and they sat under the tree, and he quieted himself to see whether they would eat it. And they said to him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, she is in the tent. And one of them said, Returning, I will return to thee in the coming year. And you shall be revived. And behold, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah was hearkening at the door of the tent. And Ishmael stood behind her and marked what the angel said. That Abraham and Sarah were old. They had mounted in days. And with Sarah the way of woman had ceased. And Sarah wondered in her heart, saying, After that I am old shall I have conceptions and my Lord Abraham is old and the Lord said to Abram why hath Sarah so laughed? saying can it be in truth that I shall bear being old is it possible to hide anything before the Lord at the gracious time I will return to thee in the time when you shall be revived and Sarah shall have a son and Sarah denied and said I wonder not for she was afraid and the angel said fear not yet in truth thou didst laugh and the angels who had the likeness of men arose from thence and the one who had made known the tidings to Sarah ascended to the high events. And two of them looked toward Saddam, and Abraham went with them. And the Lord said, With his word, I cannot hide from Abraham that which I am about to do. And it is right that before I do it, I should make it known to him. For Abraham is to be a great and mighty people, and through him shall all the peoples of the earth be blessed. Because his holiness is manifest before me, and that he will instruct his sons and the men of his house after him, to keep the ways that are right before the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham, that which he hath spoken concerning him. And the Lord said to the ministering angels, The cry of Sadom and Amorah, because they oppress the poor, and decree that whosoever giveth a morsel to the needy shall be burned with fire, is therefore great, and their guilt exceedingly weighty. I will now appear and see whether, as the cry of a damsel torn away, which ascendeth before me, they have made completion of their sins, or whether they have made an end of their sins, And if they had wrath or repentance, shall they not be as an innocent before me? And as, if knowing, I will not punish. And the angels who had the likeness of men turned thence and went towards Saddam. And Abraham now supplicated mercy for Lot and ministered in prayer before the Lord. And Abraham prayed and said, Wilt wilt thou destroy in thy displeasure the innocent with the guilty? Perhaps there are fifty innocent persons within the city who pray before thee, ten for every city of all the five cities of Saddam, Amorah, Amaz, Zeboam, and Zohar. Wilt thou in thy displeasure destroy, not forgive the country on account of the 50 innocent ones who are in it? Unholy would it be before thee to do according to this word, to slay the innocent with the guilty and to make the innocent to be as guilty. That be unholy with thee. It cannot be that that one who is the judge of all the earth should not do justice. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 innocent in the midst of the city, who pray before me, I will forgive all the land in their account. And Abraham responded and said, I pray for mercy. Behold, now I have begun to speak before the Lord. I am who I who am as dust and ashes, perhaps of the 50 innocent persons, five may be wanting on account of the five who may be wanting to Zoar wilt thou destroy the whole city? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find there 40 and five. And he added yet to speak before him. And he said, perhaps there may be 40 found there, 10 for each city of the four cities and Zoar, whose guilt is lighter. Forgive thou for thy mercy's sake. And he said, I will not make an end for the sake of the 40 innocent ones. And he said, let's not displeasure of the Lord, the Lord of all the world, wax strong against me. And I will speak, perhaps 30 who who pray may be found there, 10 for each of the three cities and Zoboam and Zoar forgive them for thy mercy's sake. And he said, I will not make an end if I find 30 there. And he said, employing mercy, I have now begun to speak before the Lord, the Lord of all the world, perhaps 20 who pray may be found, 10 in each of these two cities. And three, forgive thou for thy mercy's sake. And he said, I will not destroy for the sake of the 20 innocent. And he said, I implore mercy before thee. Let not the anger of the Lord, the Lord of all the world, grow strong. And I will speak only this time. Perhaps 10 may be found there. And I and they will pray for mercy upon all the land. And thou wilt forgive them. And he said, I will not destroy for the sake of the 10 who may be innocent. And the majesty of the Lord went up when he had ceased to speak with Abraham and abraham returned to his place wow that was that was awesome um i'm trying to play catch up here and yes i did overachieve i did commentary for 18 and 19 perfectly fine just doing 18 and then i can coast next week um okay so starting on 18 let's see where am i okay so um we're gonna read the kgv first so And Yahuwah appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day." So I want to concentrate in that word, in the heat. Um, Isaiah, Isaiah 18 says, and I thought this was a cool perspective here. All you who inhabit the world and live on earth. As soon as a flag is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And as soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. For this is what the Lord has told me. I will quietly look down from my dwelling place like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. So that's the same word in the heat. And I just thought it was interesting that Yahoo is looking down from his dwelling place. Um, same thing in, in this passage too, in Genesis 18. Uh, we're going to get into more deeply. You know, if you just read it like here, it's literally who it just appeared to him. Um, we're going to talk about that more. Was it, was it him? Was it three angels? Was it, the trinity was it yeshua uh, but either way i thought that isaiah passage uh was kind of a cool cross reference and it linked me just because of the word in the heat was in both so he's looking down at his dwelling place in the heat of the harvest um okay so um, dad i thought this was a great summary of these two chapters so <laughs> we are not going to do 19 but just remember that for next week but uh but is this, I think it's chiastic, I'm not sure exactly, but uh, chapters 18 and 19 should be viewed as a united narrative. Events of chapter 18 in the annunciation of the miraculous birth of Isaac contrasted with the announcement of the death and destruction of Sodom. Following chapters, these contrasting events are presented in an alternating pattern. So arrival of Yahuwah at Abraham's tent. Abraham greets the visitors. Abraham's hospitality to the visitors. Announcement of the birth of Isaac. Sarah laughs. Abraham intercedes with God for Sodom. Okay, so now the next chapter. Arrival of the Lord's messengers at Sodom. Lot greets the visitors. Lot's hospitality to the visitors. Announcement of the destruction of Sodom. Lot's son-in-laws laugh. Lot intercedes with the messengers to allow him go to Zoar. So, obviously, if you can remember this part of 19, but I thought this was pretty cool. Um, I mean, look at that. It's beautiful. This chaotic structure um, is make of the announcement of Isaac with the announcement of the destruction of Sodom. Obviously, Isaac plays an important piece um, there. Okay. So this is also the third mention of the trees of Mamre. We've talked about that before. Um, Genesis 13, 14, and now this one. Um, And commentary in this verse stated that in the heat of the day, which I've already talked about, meant the sixth hour or exactly midday. And then um, another part said three men approach Abraham's tent at the hottest part of the day at noontime when people sought sought shelter from the sun and usually took the main meal of the day. And next show we're going to, there'll be a little bit of disparity. I just want you to remember this part um, with the timing of when they, these angels meet Lot and also about the meal part. But uh, um, number two, so Palestinians, way different than Masoretic, like usual, it says, And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three angels in the resemblance of men were standing before him, angels who had been sent from the necessity of three things, because it is not possible for a ministering angel to be sent for more than one purpose at a time. One then had come to make known to him that Sarah should bear a man-shot. One had come to deliver lot, and one to overthrow Sodom and Amor. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the door of the tent and bowed himself on this earth. So before I get to some commentary, what do you guys think about that? Each angel has one mission <laughs> and then kind of has to go back to the father for the next one. Um, I'm just trying to think of all the times angels appear in it. That's pretty cool if that's true. Um, okay, so some commentary said, so this is rabbinic, so take it for what it's worth, but the Gemara identified the three men in Genesis 18-2 as the angels, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. Michael came to tell Sarah of Isaac's birth, which would make sense to me because he's He's Israel, Israel, Prince of Israel, um, and uh, Prince of Wisdom. Raphael came to heal Abraham, and Gabriel came to destroy Sodom. I'm not 100% sure, but wasn't Gabriel the one in charge of Sheol and Enoch? Maybe. Um, They also said the three men were standing near him, in quotes, as he sat by his tent, which was the equivalent of knocking on his door. I'll do one more, and then hand off to number three. It says... It's real quick. And said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away. I pray thee from thy servant. And I want to, obviously, I don't agree with everything here, but I thought this was interesting. Um, So this is from the Geneva Study Bible. This is 1599, guys. You know, whatever you think of that date. Uh, Regardless, it's before King Jimmy. It's before 1611. Um, but I thought it was decent. States concerning this passage, Abraham was speaking to, to, to the one who appeared to be the most majestic, for he thought they were men. This agrees with Hebrews thirteen two. Paul tells of those who entertain angels without knowing it. That Abraham at first viewed these three as men and not angels is seen in the fact that he asked them to rest themselves under the tree. Had he thought he was addressing a supposedly trinity or Yahuwah, it is doubtful that he would have stated such. He probably would invite him in, not just say, hey, go chill by the tree. He also agrees with the reference to these angels as men, for they had assumed bodies in the appearance of men. Thus so we conclude that Abraham simply addressed one of the angels in verse 3, and in verses 4 and 5, he was addressing all of them. This is much more reasonable than to read into this that all three were Jehovah, or three different persons of Jehovah. And Abraham knew he was addressing a triune God. Okay, so that was decent. What do you guys think about that? Uh, that's what I got for the
0: first three. I'll hand it off to know. All right. So there is so much going on in this chapter, and I I wanted to. I'm gonna have to take my time going through this. What I want to cover tonight is the the background story first and foremost of why these angels show up. I'll get to that in just a second. But here's here's what we read in verse one. All right. That the glory of Yahuwah was revealed to him in the Valley of Mamre. So that's really interesting here that, that this is the glory of the most high being revealed um when these three angels show up. And honestly, I mean, I, I don't know what to make of that because already there's, there's comments buzzing about, well, is it Yahoo show? You know, you know, and as Michael brought up the the three different angels, one of which might be Michael, I think uh, uh, I have those notes too. Um And you know, who, who is it? Well, I'll, I'll I'll throw out some possibilities as well if Michael doesn't get to it first. And at the end of the day, I, I, I kind of don't know just because there's so many possibilities to look at. And that's a great discussion point at the end. Hopefully we can all put our heads together. But anyways, it says this. And he, this of course is Abraham, being ill from the pain of circumcision, sat at the door of the tabernacle in the heat or the strength of the day So the contrast is stunning between Sodom and Abraham. We know that Sodom is right around the corner, the destruction of Sodom. It's the next event. Abraham is circumcised, thereby showing the mark of his covenant with Yahuwah. And so he's still like it's it's only it's been like, what, a few days, Uh, a a day, a a two. I'm not quite sure. I read somewhere else where I think it gives specifics. It might actually be in Jasher. I'll have to look that up. I I wish I would have looked up for the study. But. Right away, Sodom is destroyed. That cannot possibly be a coincidence by any, by any means. Also, the promise of Yitzhak is finally exacted and Sodom is destroyed on the following day. There is a, a clearly a, a spiritual example or contrast uh, being shown here. Now, this is what I've, it says in the final ch- couple chapters of Deuteronomy in the Targum. Blessed be the name of Yahuwah of the world who hath taught us his righteous way. He hath taught us to clothe the naked as he clothed Adam and Hava. All right? So what this is going to do is it's going to go through how all the things that are most dear to the Most High, as well as Yahushua. I mean, what did he say? He said, you know, if you do his well, you know, clothe the, uh, clothe the clothe the homeless and the poor and feed them and take care of the widows and the orphans, right? Those are all things that are Uh, take care of the sick and the people in prison. All right. So it says that he taught us to clothe the naked in clothing, Adam and Hava makes sense. Um, You know, he, he wouldn't ask us to do something that he doesn't do himself. He had taught us to unite the bridegroom and bride in marriage as he united Hava and Adam. He had taught us to visit the sick as he revealed himself to Abraham when he was ill. So here, according to the, uh, Targum, it's once more stating that in one way or another, either through the three men or some other presence that accommodated them, uh, he revealed himself. He came to visit Abraham while he was sick. That's what he wants us to do to others uh, uh, from being circumcised. And then it goes on and says, He hath taught us to console the mourners as he revealed himself to Yaakov and returning from Padan and the place where his mother had died. He hath taught us to feed the poor as he sent Yashiro bread from heaven. He hath taught us to bury the dead by what he did for Moshe, for he revealed himself in his word, and with him the co- companies of ministering angels. All right. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read an entire chapter from Jasher. My apologies to those of you who have already read this chapter, um, or might make great re- reviews. Some of you may have never read this, but this is this is giving the 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 background story to why the angels arrived at least two of the angels why they arrived and when we think of sodom and gomorrah within churchianity christianity we get this idea that you know they were destroyed because of homosexuality well i mean that was definitely a part of it i mean homosexuality is an abomination and that they were destroyed for that but but they weren't actually destroyed for that in and of itself it, it was what we were going to read here is that the destruction of sodom and gomorrah came about because they had created laws which made it impossible for the righteous people to actually live out yahuwah's instructions and righteous living, and that is the the tipping point for him in a lot of these destruction events. It's like you're actually persecuting the righteous, those who are trying to live for me, and you are making it impossible for them to do it with the laws you have enacted. I am coming to destroy you. So. In, in a way, homosexuality—it's it, important, but it can be a misdirection um, to some of the laws that have been enacted throughout the world recently, that have made it very difficult for people to live. For uh, Yah. and you guys know what I'm talking about. All right, so here we go. This is Josh, chapter 19, and the cities of Sodom had four judges to four cities, and these were their names: Sirach in the city of Sodom. Uh, Sharkad in Gomorrah, Zabnak in Adma, and Minon in Zeboim, and Eliezer, Av- Abraham's servant. We know that he is either Nimrod's son or grandson. He's the one that Abraham wanted to hand the keys of the kingdom over to. Eliezer uh, applied to them different names, and he converted Sirach to Shakra Sharkah to Shakrua, Zebnak to Kizobim, and Minan to Matslodim. And by desire of their four judges, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had beds erected in the streets of the cities. Now I will either I or Michael, I'm sure, will be revisiting this very, very important verse next week when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and why the angels specifically they didn't want to go to Lot's house, they wanted to sleep in these beds in the streets. Why did they want to sleep in the beds? Well because they heard the report of what happened. We'll get to that. So they had uh, they had beds erected in the streets of the cities. And if a man came to these places, they laid hold of him and brought him to one of their beds, and by force made him to lie in them. And as he lay down, three men would stand at his head and three at his feet, And measure him by the length of the bed, and if the man was less than the bed, these six men would stretch him at each end. And when he cried out to them, they would not answer him. And if he was longer than the bed, they would draw together the two sides of the bed at each end until the man had reached the gates of death. And if so, they're just basically torturing him. And I'm sure they're being kind to you know, yeah, they're probably doing some very, you know, you know, sadistic uh, or uh, uh, you know, sodomy type acts here. And if he continued to cry out to them, they would answer him saying, thus shall it be done to a man that cometh into our land. Well, that's a lovely welcome. Uh, and when men heard all these things that the people, the cities of Sodom dead, they refrained from coming there. I would imagine that they, if they're this morally depraved, that the, the city itself would be physically unattractive, you know, like it wouldn't be kept up. Um, Usually people who are that far gone, um, the the surrounding environments will not be that attractive to foreigners to begin with. And when a poor man came to the land, they would give him silver and gold and cause a proclamation in the whole city not to give him a morsel of bread to eat. And if the stranger should remain there some days and die from hunger, not having been able to obtain a morsel of bread, then at his death, all the people of the city would come and take their silver and gold, which they had given to him. And those that could recognize the silver or gold, which they had given him, took it back. And at his death, they also stripped him of his garments, and they would fight about them. And he that prevailed over his neighbor took them. So now you see that they are, they're not taking care of the strangers. They're oppressing uh, the poor to the point that they're starving them. And this is, of course, the law that they had to do it. They would, after that, carry him and bury him under some of the shrubs in the deserts. So now they're not burying him. We just read that, that that's something God, you know, did with Moshe. He did it with Adam. It's something he takes very seriously. So that uh, so they did all the days to anyone that came to them and died in their land. And in the course of time, Sarah sent Eliezer to Sodom to see Lot and inquire after his welfare. And Eliezer... <laughs> uh, It's interesting that uh, that Sarah is keeping up the family relations here. You notice that Abraham did not send his his own servant. It was his wife that uh, was keeping, keeping the family ties together. And Eliezer went to Sodom, and he met a man of Sodom fighting with the stranger. And the man of Sodom stripped the poor man of all his clothes and went away. And this poor man cried to Eliezer and supplicated his favor on account of what the man of Sodom had done to him. And he said to him, why dost thou act us to the poor man who came to thy land? And the man of Sodom answered Eliezer, saying, is this man thy brother or have the people of Sodom made thee a judge this day that thou speakest about this man? Um, it, <laughs> it's funny how he's invoking the judges there, which is what people do to the, today. You know, are you are you a judge? are you god you know you know only god can judge me or whatever and eliezer strove with the man of sodom on account of the poor man and when eliezer approached to recover the poor man's clothes from the man of sodom he hastened and with a stone smote eliezer in the forehead and the blood flowed copious, copiously from eliezer's forehead and when the man saw the blood he caught hold of eliezer saying Give me my hire for having rid thee of this bad blood that was in thy forehead, for such is the custom of the law in our land. And Eliezer said to him, Thou hast wounded me and requirest me to pay thee thy hire. And Eliezer would not hearken to the words of the man of Sodom. It's almost like, um, this is like a bullying of the umph degree. You know, like where, uh, like, you see it online all the time, but a, a, a bully can, you know, they will, they will hold your head underwater and you're struggling to breathe. And the only thing you could do to get breath is to swing your arms up and hit him. And he's like, look what this man's doing. Look at, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit is not in this individual. You look how he's reacting and he's swinging at me and no man of God would do this. Right. And he's like doing the same thing, right. Where he injures him. And then he's like, you know, now you, you owe me for this injury. Something kind of similar to what's going on here. El- is like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, and so the man laid hold of Eliezer and brought him to Chakra, the judge of Sodom, for judgment. And the man spoke to the judge, saying, I beseech thee, my Adonai, thus has this man done, for I smote him with a stone that the blood flowed from his forehead, and he is unwilling to give me my hire. And so you can see there where the law is so oppressive at this point that. Um, that, you know, yeah, that it's that's pretty. I mean, pretty backwards. And the judge said to Eliezer, "This man speaketh truth to thee. Give him his hire, for this is the custom of our land." And Eliaser heard the words of the judge, and he lifted up a stone and smote the judge, and the stone struck on his forehead. Um, I guess this is poetic justice. And the blood flowed copiously from the forehead of the judge. And Eliezer said, if this then is the custom in your land, give thou unto this man what I should have given him. For this has been thy decision, and thou didst decree it. Something tells me Eliezer is going to get in deep trouble. And Eliezer left the man of Sodom with the judge, and he went away. I guess he didn't. (laughs) Maybe I spoke too soon. Verse 23, and when the kings of Elam had made war with the kings of Sodom, the kings of Elam captured all the property of Sodom, and they took Lot captive with his property. We saw this a few weeks back in the Genesis 14 war. And when it was told to Abraham, he went and made war with the kings of Elam and recovered from their hands all the property of Lot as well as the property of Sodom. At that time, the wife of Lot bare him a daughter, and he called her name Palteth, saying because elohim had delivered him and his whole household from the kings of elam and Palteth, daughter of lot grew up and one of the men of sodom took her for a wife and a poor man came into the city to seek a maintenance and he remained in the city some days and all the people of sodom caused a proclamation to their custom not to give this man a morsel of bread to eat until he dropped dead upon the earth and they did so And Palteth, the daughter of Lot, saw this man lying in the street, starved with hunger. And no one would give him anything to keep him alive. And he was just upon the point of death. And her soul was filled with pity on account of the man. And she fed him secretly with bread for many days. And the soul of this man was revived. Something tells me she's not going to get out of this one. For when she went forth to fetch water, she would put the bread in the water pitcher And when she came to the place where the poor man was, she took the bread from the pitcher and gave it to him to eat. So she did many days. And all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah wondered how this man could bear starvation for so many days. And they said to each other, this can only be that he eats and drinks. For no man can bear starvation for so many days or live as this man has without even his countenance changing. And three men concealed themselves in a place where the poor man was stationed to know who it was that brought him bread to eat. And Palteth, the daughter of Lot, went forth that day to fetch water, and she put bread into her pitcher of water, and she went to draw water by the poor man's place, and she took out the bread from the pitcher and gave it to the poor man, and he ate it. And the three men saw what Palteth did to the poor man, and they said to her, It is thou then who has supported him, and therefore has he not starved, nor changed in appearance, nor died like the rest." And the three men went out of the place in which they were concealed, and they seized Paltith and the bread which was in the poor man's hand. And they took her and brought her before their judges, and they said to them, thus did she do. And is she who supplied the poor man with bread. Therefore did he not die all this time. Now therefore declare to us the punishment due to this woman for having transgressed our law. So that's that's the key there. By keeping the law of Yahuwah, she transgressed their law. And this is what, this is the butting of heads right here where Yahuwah sends down the angels to investigate. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah assembled and kindled a fire in the street of the city. And they took the woman and cast her into the fire and she was burned to ashes. So that's kind of interesting because we'll see this next week when Lot hands over one of his daughters Um, something similar is going on there. And he's like, take her instead of the angels. He'd already lost a daughter to the fire. And in the city of Adma, there was a woman to whom they did the like. For a traveler came into the city of Adma to abide there all night with the intention of going home in the morning. And he sat opposite the door of the house of the young woman's father to remain there as the sun had set when he, um, he had reached the place. And the young woman saw him sitting by the door of the house. And he asked her for a drink of water and said to him, who art thou? And he said to her, I was this day going on the road and reached here when the sun set. So I will abide here all night. And in the morning, I will rise early and continue my journey. And the young woman went into the house and fetched the man bread and water to eat and drink. And this affair became known to the people of Adma. And they assembled and brought the young woman before the judges that they should judge her for this act. And the judge said that the judgment of death must pass upon this woman because she transgressed our law there it is again transgress our law and this therefore is the decision concerning her and the people of those cities assembled and brought out the young woman and anointed her with honey from head to foot as the judge had decreed and they placed her b- before her a swarm of bees wi- uh, which were and the bees flew upon her and stung her that her whole body was swelled i mean this is sadistic And the young woman cried out on account of the bees, but no one took notice of her or pitied her. And here it is right here. And her cries ascended to heaven. So finally, after all that has happened, it is her cries that ascends to heaven as she's being stung by the bees. And Yahuwah was provoked at this and at all the works of the cities of Sodom for they had abundance of food and had tranquility among them and still would not sustain the poor and the needy. And in those days, their evil doings and sins became great before Yahuwah and Yahuwah sent for two of the angels. So well, we saw this there in in the Genesis Targum, that uh, one of them, you know, ascended back to heaven really because the two others were coming to Sodom. They sent for two of the angels that had come to Abraham's house to destroy Sodom and its cities. All right, um, and I'm just going to catch up here to where Michael is at before handing it back to him. Uh, but he Michael covered here a lot of the the ideas of the the angels who had been sent from the necessity of where it says because it is not possible for a. Ministering angel to be sent for more than one purpose at a time. That's an interesting concept. I tried looking into that. I think Michael did as well. I wasn't finding a whole lot except for a couple commentaries on it. One that was interesting apparently comes from Justin Martyr of all people in dialogue 56c during his debate on angels. I was trying to read through that today to find the quote. I was unable to, but apparently. Uh, justin martyr may have also believed that an angel would come for one purpose at a time go back to heaven and come back again for another purpose and um i'm not sure where he was getting that from and let's see here what else do i have again where we see where michael talked about uh, my, uh michael gabriel and Raphael were the identity of the three angels i'm not sure where that commentator from Beer Shiat Raba 50 is getting that idea from it is interesting nonetheless um you know it might be correct i don't i don't necessarily agree with that i think that there are other possibilities to look at and oh yeah these same two angels interestingly enough actually these three angels are described later on in the targum so this is what the same account we see in um in, oh yeah, two, I'm sorry, two. In Genesis 28:12 of the Targum. Okay, so pay attention to this. This is Yaakov's ladder. And this is what we read. And he dreamed Yaakov. And behold, the ladder was fixed in the ground and the top of it reached to the height of heaven. And behold, the two angels who went into Sodom, so the, the two that Abraham walked with, and who had been expelled from the midst of them, because they had revealed the secrets of Yahuwah of the world. Wait, what? And being cast forth, they had walked till the time that Yaakov went out from the house of his father and had a- accompanied him with kindness unto Bethel. And that day had ascended to the high heavens and said, come see Yaakov, the pious, whose likeness is inlaid in the throne of glory and whom you have so greatly desired to behold. Then the rest of the angels of the Holy of Yahuwah descended to look upon him. So according to the Genesis Targum, these two angels, um, they were not able to ascend to heaven after Sodom and Gomorrah because they screwed up. They did something wrong. They revealed the secrets of Yahuwah of the world. And... Uh, that's as far as I got in that. I wasn't able to dig further and see what these secrets were that they supposedly revealed, but uh, that's interesting nonetheless. But then we see that of these three angels, one of them just so happens to be the narrator of Jubilees. Well, isn't that interesting? This is what this is right here in in Jubilees chapter sixteen. And on the new moon of the fourth month, we appeared unto Abraham at the oak of mamre Hmm. and we talked with him and we announced to him that a son would be given to him by sarah his woman now we know that according to the targum if the targum is to believe be believed that only one of them was purposed with um uh declaring that the child would be born here he says we so that would if If the two accounts are to be connected, it would lead me to believe that either this angel that is writing Jubilees is not the one that announced it, um, or he's just including the other two in it. I I think that he probably was the one that announced it. Um, But uh, let's keep going on. In Jubilees, he goes by no name except to be referred to as the Angel of the Presence. Well, that's interesting. So the Angel of the Presence, assumably of Yahuwah, is the one who wrote the book. And it makes sense because the presence of Yahuwah, the Most High, was revealed to Abraham at the Oak of Mamre. Uh, So the person who dictated Moshe's heavenly revelation is the angel of the presence. The book provides neither the angel's name nor a clear picture of his celestial roles and offices. We read this, though, in Jubilee 6. For I have written this in the book of the first law in which I wrote for you that you should celebrate it at each of its times, one day in a year. I have told you about its sacrifice so that the Israelites may continue to remember and celebrate it throughout their generations during this month, one day each year. It appears as though the angel of the presence claims to have written the first law, that is, the Pentateuch. Uh, Well, in the Torah, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and so on. I mean, so this angel is responsible for revealing it to Moshe uh let's see what else we got here uh oh here's another one from jubilees chapter 30 for this reason i have written for you in the words of the law the torah everything that the uh shechemites did to dinah and how yaakov's son said we will not give our daughter to a man who has a foreskin because for us that would be a disgraceful thing so uh this the angel the presence is revealing this to Moshe. Uh, he is credited himself as personally uh, he, or he personally insists on writing the divine words, thus claiming the role of the celestial scribe in a fashion similar to Moshe. So this angel, of the presence, is identifying himself as a celestial scribe. And so I will ask, is it possible that the two protagonists are presented to us? One human and the other angelic both of whom are scribes and authors of the Torah. Okay, so I know I've been talking for a long time. Thank you, Michael, for being patient. Uh, I didn't realize I had so many notes here on verse one, but um, I'm going to throw out the possibility that uh, that Enoch, um, that none other than Enoch or Metatron is perhaps in the scene. Okay, now maybe it's Yehusha. I don't I don't know. Maybe it is. But um, this is what we see here. We see that uh, Enoch became a heavenly scribe. And the writer of Jubilees is saying that he's a heavenly scribe. And who are the two great scribes? It's Enoch and Moshe. All right. So this is what we read in second Enoch chapter 22. This actually talks about his ceremony of becoming the scribe of heaven. On the 10th heaven, Uh, If you guys remember that I talked about the seven firmaments of heaven, that there's seven heavens. Actually, the surprise ending is that (laughs) I didn't finish the paper. Is actually that there's 10. There's uh, the the top three are like the the penthouse for Yahuwah and his selected guests that not even most of the angels can even visit. On the 10th heaven, which is called Erevoth, I saw the appearance of Yahuwah's face like iron made to glow in fire and brought out emitting sparks and it burns. Thus, in a moment of eternity, I saw Yahuwah's face, but Yahuwah's face is ineffable, marvelous, and very awful, and very, very terrible. And who am I to tell of Yahuwah's unspeakable being, and of his very wonderful face? And I cannot tell the quantity of his many instructions and various voices. Yahuwah's throne is very great and not made with hands, nor the quantity of those standing around him, troops of cherubim and seraphim nor their incessant singing, nor his immutable beauty. And who shall tell of the ineffable greatness of his glory? And I fell prone and bowed down to Yahuwah, and Yahuwah with his lips said to me, have courage, Enoch, do not fear. Arise and stand before my face into eternity. And the arches, uh, straight, or the archistratege, I, I guess that's the archangel, uh, Mikael, or Michael, lifted me up and led me to before Yahuwah's face. And Yahuwah said to his servants, tempting them, let Enoch stand before my face into eternity. And the glorious ones bowed down to Yahuwah and said, let Enoch go according to your word. And Yahuwah said to Michael or Mikael, go and take Enoch from out of his earthly garments and anoint him with my sweet ointment and put him into the garments of my glory. And Mikael did this, thus as Yahuwah told him, he anointed me and dressed me and the appearance of that ointment is more than the great light and his ointment is like sweet dew and it's smell mild shining like the sun's rays and I looked at myself and I was like one of his glorious ones and Yahuwah summoned one of his archangels by named Prev- previel whose knowledge was quicker in wisdom than the other archangels and wrote all the deeds of Yahuwah and Yahuwah said to previel Bring out the books for my storehouses and a read of quick writing, and give it to Enoch and deliver it to him the choice and comforting books out of your hand. And he was telling me all the works of heaven, earth and sea, and all the elements, their passings and goings, and the thunderings of the thunders, the sun and moon, the goings and changes of the stars, the seasons, years, days, and hours, the risings of the wind, the numbers of the angels, and the formation of their songs, and all human things, the tongue of every human song and life. The commandments instructions and sweet voice singings and all things that it is fitting to learn and prevual told me all the things that i have told you we have written so he's saying we now enoch has become a scribe sit and write all the souls of mankind however many of them are born and the place is prepared for them to eternity for all souls are prepared to eternity before the formation of the world that's interesting. There's another, all souls were prepared before the formations of the world. And all double 30 days and 30 nights. Uh, so I guess uh, 60 days in total, because double 30 days. And I wrote out all things exactly and wrote 366 books. Well, there, right, right there is perhaps your canon number. Uh 366 books. If he's the scribe of heaven and he's kind of like the doppelganger of an earthly person writing and he's writing out the books, um, that might be it. A little later on in chapter 39 of 2nd Enoch, we see Enoch returning to the earth and speaking of a dual personality. Um, kind of his earthly self and his heavenly counterpart. I won't get too much into this, but it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, he says, "You, my children, you see my." So he returns to the earth here, and he's already been taken up. He returns. He returns to his son uh, Methuselah, and he's kind of telling him, "Okay, I'm only going to be here a little bit of time. I'm going to leave." So he and he's instructing them, and he says, "You, my children, you see my face. A human being created just like yourselves. I am one who has seen the face of Yahuwah, like iron made burning hot by a fire, emitting sparks. For you gaze into my eyes, a human being created just like yourselves." But I have gazed into the eyes of Yahuwah, like the rays of the shining sun and terrifying the eyes of a human being. You, my children, you see my right hand beckoning you, a human being created identical to yourselves. But I have seen the right hand of the of Yahuwah beckoning me who fills heaven. You see the extent of my body, the same as your own. But I have seen the extent of Yahuwah without measure and without analogy, who has no end. All right, uh, I think that's, going to be where i'm going to end it and uh i'm just i think going on verse three now but um back to you michael and uh sorry it took so long thank you for being patient <laughs> no problem that
1: was great stuff uh i have to listen to it again because it was a lot jasher the jubilees part i didn't go into jasher so that was good um and then mary had a question and i had the same question two angels who gave up the secrets of yahoo that was interesting and uh if you can just maybe write in the chat uh, where you got that. I thought you said Targum, but I'm not sure. Um, and then I'm wondering you know, if it's next week, two angels that went with a lot. I'm pretty sure that's what you said. So that's really interesting. Because um, I was thinking those were like a two witnesses kind of thing to the destruction. I think someone else said that earlier. Um, so yeah, if you can just clarify more of that, either, either next time or just put it in the chat. OK, back to the commentary here. So number four. <clears throat> KJV says, let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Now, I found this awesome, cross reference. Um, First, Samuel 25, 41, and she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Same thing that just happened here. Um, uh, Abram is washing the servants of the father. And that's what uh, first Samuel's doing. Um, so it was custom to provide water for a guest to wash his feet. It was one of the, the respectful signs of hospitality. Yeshua washed the feet of his apostles at the last Supper in a teaching that illustrated the humility necessary to serve as his emissaries in spreading the gospel. Um, now this is a good story too. Yeshua did. So it is Targum, that's good. Targum 28, so we'll get to that in a few, like a month or so. Um, So Luke wrote of an incident that took place when Yeshua was invited to eat at the home of a wealthy Pharisee. At the dinner, a sinful woman approached Yeshua as he was reclining at the banquet table of his host. She waited behind him at his feet, weeping, and her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them away with her hair. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is and what sort of person it is who is touching him and what a bad name she has. Knowing what the Pharisee was thinking, if she would chastise his house, there was an un- uncharitable thought and added, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you poured no water over my feet because he's a servant of the, lo- the Father. But she has poured out her tears over my feet and wiped them away with her hair. Washing of shoes, was sweet by the sinful woman was a sign of her repentance. The wealthy Pharisee did not show that sign of hospitality. Um, again, just another connection I think is beautiful. Um Okay. Number five, uh, Palestinian says, And I will bring food of bread that you may strengthen your hearts and give thanks in the name of the word of the Lord. And afterwards, pass on. For therefore, at the time of repast are you come and have turned aside to your servant to take food. And they said, Thou hast spoken well, do according to thy word. So, saw a commentary that says this uh, Abraham offered, and I will fetch a morsel of bread. And then two sentences later, he says, And Abraham ran to the herd. So, doing much more than he offered um and what they're saying is the righteous promise little and perform much whereas the wicked promise much and do not perform even little and it's just you know you know that's the old uh, one-liner of you know like o- over over-prom- don't overpromise and underdeliver you know do the opposite right um underpromise and overdeliver and that's what you know that's what they're saying Abraham did um, he didn't have to maybe uh go get the the herd but he, he did anyway. Uh, okay, so number six. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the heart. Um, okay, so <clears throat> my wife found this one. I thought this was interesting. Matthew thirteen thirty three is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Another parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. The whole was leavened. So that's what Sarah did. She made three measures of fine meal, kneaded it, and made cakes upon the heart. What do you guys make about that? Um, that was an interesting connection. I have to, still have to work through it. But the kingdom of heaven, it, it seems, was the same scenario just here in Genesis 18.6. Um, I'll read it again. Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah. He's telling his wife, make ready, quickly, three measures, of fine meal. This is the kingdom of heaven par- parable that Yeshua said, knead it and make cakes. Okay, um, I'll do two more, eight and ten. Uh, number eight, Palestinian, he took rich cream and milk and the calf, which the young man had made into prepared meats and set before them, according to the way, well way and conduct of the creatures of the world, and he served before them, and they sat under the tree, and he quieted himself whether they would eat. So saw another commentary that, on this verse that said abraham's concern for the comfort of the visitors is a, is a typical depiction of middle eastern courtesy washing away the dust of the journey providing hastily baked cakes of what was probably unleavened bread loaves milfs milk in two forms and roasted meat so this was another thing uh, my wife pointed out this reminded me of the kid in his mother's milk verse this was before that and blessed by Ya. this was blessed by Ya. so it couldn't mean what some think it means what do you guys think? So in Exodus 23, 19. That's Pamela. Um, Exodus 23, 19. Good night. Uh, the first of the first fruits of thy land, thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord, thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. You know, you hear so many crazy different definitions of this. Um, is that what happened here? Like, um, they took the calf and the milk um, from Abraham's, I don't, I don't know. But I thought that was interesting. Um, what do you guys make about that? Uh, that's another thing I forgot to say. Please take notes and, and add comments later. We love hearing them from you guys. Okay, last one. Then I'll hand off to note number 10. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. I'm just going to... This, this is... uh see it, you on the promises. So Genesis 12-2, Yah informs Abraham that he will make him a great nation. Genesis fifteen forty, Abraham is promised and heir. We talked about that last show or two shows ago. And then right here, Yah assured Abraham that his son will come from the womb of his wife, Sarah. So Yah keeps his promises. Amazing. Um, still have a decent amount left, but 10 is a good stopping point. Hand it back off to no.
0: So... Just as clarification, because the question went out there, when I was quoting about the two angels that uh, were present at Yaakov's ladder, when he's seeing the angels descending and ascending, that those, according to the Genesis Targum, those were the same two angels that accompanied Abraham to Sodom. And uh, for whatever reason, they were, they failed at their mission, and they were not allowed to enter heaven again for some time and it's kind of interesting because it's depicting a very raw version of angels that we're almost not allowed to think about in in the evangelical world and our upbringings you know the the angels are perfect they can't make mistakes and uh, they can't rebel that you know they, they had a decision to rebel with satan back in the day but uh, apparently, these these uh, angels didn't complete their mission as they were told, and as a result, they were not able to return to heaven for a certain amount of time. And they were finally able to at Yaakov's ladder. Now, this is according to the Aramaic targum, and I, um, you know, I, I I'd have to look back at where I I quoted from that specifically. What chapter? I think it's twenty eight or something like that. Uh, it's it's in the chapter of Jacob's ladder. You can look it up, and we'll get to that eventually when Michael and I finally roll around to that chapter. All right. So here's something that. I found really interesting in verse eight. And you know, the, the big discussion is what how or the big question is is how did Abraham perceive these three visitors? Did he know they were angels? He says, it says in verse eight, and I, I think this is such a, a great little commentary on human behavior. It says in the Targum, not in the Masoretic, and he says, and he Abraham quieted himself to see whether they would eat. So he puts them under the shade of the tree i you know i I disagree with the, any kind of uh, notion that that if they were angels, he wouldn't have put them under the shade of the tree he's like he's do i think he he's he was given his visitors um he was top notch care and like he wasn't like, well, you're not an angel, so I'm gonna put you under the tree. but if you're an angel, I would put you no, it's like he's he's treating them with top-notch quality, you know, they're they're first class. You know, he's going to give them the finest meat, the finest milk. He's going to sit them down, he's going to spend his day talking with them. He's going to put everything aside. And um and so here he is, he's sitting there. He puts the food in front of them and he's like leaning in. He's not saying anything. He's like, are they going to eat or not? Right? Because he it's like he knows they're angels or he highly suspects them to be angels. We don't really I guess totally know. But um he's uh he's like, you know, they they have dusty feet apparently and you know they they traveling and are these really truly angels and it, there's i've had this discussion with people in this group before and there are other people here who have had their angel encounter stories you know where you believe there was this time in your life where you really did encounter an angel and i mean i have mine as well i'll give you one example i was uh i, I think i was 13 it was probably 1994 and uh, it could have been 1995, but it doesn't. That doesn't really matter, as you know. I was probably 13, and I was climbing up Half Dome in Yosemite. Now, if anyone doesn't know what Half Dome is, I actually talked about it a couple of weeks ago when I went through the mud fossils, and I pointed out the giant, uh, the giant woman's head that's crying that is apparently burned into Half Dome. Well, Half Dome is 8,800 feet above sea level. Uh, now, Yosemite Valley, the, val- the valley. Floor, it's um, it's four thousand feet above sea level, making the top of Half Dome four thousand eight hundred feet above the valley floor. That's a long drop. Uh, the last bit of the climb up Half Dome, if you're going up the back end, is four hundred feet straight up granite, with only two wires to hold on to. Um, and I did not strap into the wires. Most people don't. You just hold on to the wires and you climb up freestyle. And I uh, hope you don't fall. Well, the, the same two wires leading up and down, it's a very tight squeeze to let anyone pass. Like you literally, it is so narrow, you, you almost have to step outside of the wire to let somebody come down. You know, like you can kind of move to the side. It's very, very tight. I, I bring this up because somebody is not going to climb. If you're ascending, someone's not going to descend past you and you're not going to notice. Like you're going to notice. Uh, and one slip, of course, and it's nearly 5,000 feet to the bottom. So I was 13. I was climbing up with my dad and my brother, and we decided to go climbing at the crack of dawn. Now, if you need the logistics on this, we went camping at the very base of the final climb in a place called Little Yosemite Valley. We started at, at, in the pure dark with flashlights, and as we were making the final ascent, the sun was just peeking over the east, Uh, over the horizon and so there was just that kind of purplish light you know and i remember it was my first climb up i was terrified and um i was just praying for 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 safety you know back then i would call him god or the father or the lord or whatever and i was just praying for for his safety and i kid you not it was the the first time in my life where i felt an overwhelming presence of angels on all sides of me like that's how i would describe it that exact moment that i had these these, these angels on my left, my right behind me. Like I wasn't like, they're letting me know you're not going to fall. We have you, you got this. And I started climbing. My, my dad later commented that he said I was just sprinting up that thing. Like I would just charge. He couldn't believe it. Like I, I was, I was leaving them in the dust. I was probably 20 minutes ahead of them. That's how, I mean, I was just going up this thing. Well, when I got about two thirds of the, of the way up to the final 400 foot climb, um, I was uh, I was wearing gloves, but um, my hands got really sweaty. And if you guys know what that's like, like you're if you're in gloves and you're trying to hold on to something, your hands all sweaty, and it's like you feel like if you let go, your hands going to slip out and all that kind of stuff. And I I was almost dangling there, and I'm like, there was nobody else; it was just me up there, nobody else. And I'm like, I'm going to fall. And I was I was terrified. And I remember I just prayed, I cried, out. I said, help. I cried to the Father, I said, help me. And immediately there was a man standing in front of me, probably, uh, you know, easily seven foot tall, uh, white skin, blonde hair, blue eyed. He was standing right in front of me and he said, and he grabbed me and, uh, he, and he, he set me on my feet and we had a little bit of an exchange and he said, uh, and I immediately knew, I'm like, this is an angel, that this is, this dude is legitimately an angel, but I didn't add, I didn't, I didn't say that to him because who would? it would be like, "Are you an angel? Are you my guardian angel? Like, you know, what's your name? Are you Michael? You know, like it was just like like stunned. Like I could barely speak. And he said, uh, he said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Is there anything else I can do for you?" And I said, "No, I'm good." And then he continued on down past me. Well, what the crazy thing is is when I got to the top and the sun has just risen, I wait about twenty minutes. Like I said, my dad, my brother get up there, and I and I'm just telling them like did you guys see the guy uh, uh, pass you by? And like, they are like, wh- what are you talking about? Like, there was a guy, it was a blog, You know, I described him, he said, and I told him the whole story. He's like, like, no, nobody passed us by. There was nobody on those ropes. And they thought I was making the whole thing up. Um, and they kind of believed me. You know, I mean, they, they had the same worldview. But it's kind of interesting to see Abraham with the same kind of thing. Like, he's not, you know, he's not, like, putting it out there, and, uh, but he's curious all the same. All right, so in review... Abraham sees three men standing near to him. According to the straightforward reading of the text, it is Yahuwah, uh, the presence of Yahuwah, or you might even say Yahuwah plus two angels. Maybe it's Yehusha's son. I, I don't, again, I don't know. Uh, after they eat, they inquire about the absence of Sarah. Now, I find this really interesting. They say to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he replied, there in the tent. Oddly, even though this verse suggests that the men are looking for her for Sarah, or that they have come for her, and that's what it, it the angel in Jubilee says that they came to give her that message. Uh, the story simply continues with the men speaking to Abraham. Uh, and, and he said in verse 10, I will return to you at the due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. Um, the, the angel, one of the angels says Abraham. Uh, sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him okay so one of the things we do see here and in the, in the the jewish sages have talked about this they think one of the meanings of this is that we see sarah's modesty highlighted i mean here abraham is speaking to these angels and she's not like running up and trying to grab attention for them and asking all these questions she's like remaining in the tents um and so there's a guy named Rabbi Yitzhak, and this is what he has to say about it. The ministering angels knew that our mother Sarah was in the tent. So what was the question leading to Abraham's response in the tent for in order to make her beloved to her husband? So the idea is, is that, uh, according to accordingly, the angels were just trying to get Abraham to notice how modest Sarah was by calling his attention to the fact that she wasn't there, that she was remaining in the tent. It's interesting. All right. Well, the question that I have is why the presence of Yahuwah, the Most High, and the two angels, uh, or I guess you say the three angels, inquired about Sarah, all right? Now, again in review, after Abraham circumcises his household and himself, Yahuwah appears to him while he was sitting in his tents. Um, Okay, no, okay, I already went over that. All right, let me... um, let's see okay okay here's the here's the question i had i was a little confused there let me let me back this up again the question is did somebody go into the tent okay now this is a very controversial question and this is something that again has been asked by the the sages and i, I keep saying the jewish sages because number one i'm fascinated with how they think and how they process the bible but also some things that i'm going to mention here is um is is shocking to say the least in, and why they now reject what I'm going to talk about. Uh, it, so in the ma- Masoretic uh, script of verse 9, there is a word there which I cannot pronounce. And um, oh, let's see if it's going to translate this in here if I put this in here into Discord. Yes, there it is. You can see it right there. Well, that word right there has dots called punctia extraordinaria. That's the official word, uh, which, according to the rabbis, communicates some sort of hesitation about whether the word or letters really belong in the biblical text. Um, So the letters Aleph Yad Vav. So, okay, so that falls in with the angel asking the question, where is your wife, Sarah? And that's where we find that Hebrew word. The letters Aleph Yad Vav have dots written all over them, which are very unusual for these letters. And they, again, this is the, the Masoretic text, not the you know, Paleo-Hebrew, which might be a whole different discussion. I don't know. Um, so the rabbi Simeon, the son of Eliezer, has said regarding these dots, wherever you find more regular letters than dotted letters, you should interpret the regular letters But if more dotted letters than regular letters, you should interpret the dotted letters, if that makes any sense to you. So here the dotted letters outnumber the regular letters. So you should interpret the dotted letters. Does that make sense? So there are more dots surrounding this word in this passage than the letters themselves. As a result, some rabbinical commentators have assumed the graffiti dots communicate a missing scene, namely... That the angel, or, that an angel or the angels entered the tent and spoke with Sarah directly. The change of verb tense from the plural they said in verse nine to the singular he said in verse 10 implies a change of scene. In the first scene, all three angels are speaking with Abraham. And the next scene, only one announces Sarah's pregnancy and the future birth of Isaac and of Yitchak. And of course, then in the Aramaic Targum, he flies off. And between these two speeches, the angels entered. The tent to be with Sarah. I bring this up because, again, the sages of the Torah have long pondered over the possibilities, the missing words, as well as the implications of this passage. Why does the text sim- imply a scene with Sarah secluded with one of the angels? And so some have asked Is it possible that this visit was not merely to announce that Sarah would become pregnant, but is also explaining how? sarah a menopausal woman became miraculously pregnant now stay with me here that's not to say sex is our only option what i am not suggesting is that the angels had sex with sarah some of the rabbinical uh commentators throughout the years have um have looked at that option because they're like is that is is that being implied here Now, there's a lot of reasons, obviously, that I don't believe that's the case. Uh, Genesis 6 is one of them, Um, you know, obviously. And we just went through two accounts of of Sarah before Abimelech and Pharaoh, and they wanted to have sex with her. And Yahuwah intervened and stopped it from happening. So it would be strange then to introduce some angels uh, of YAH to go and do the deed um but we do see of course Genesis 6 we see Cain being the literal son of the serpent and so on and some have also suggested that something similar happened with Samson that there was a miraculous intervention from angels um so it seems to me that an angel if he were alone with Sarah in the tent may have done something to open her womb in the very least okay that is what i am suggesting as a possibility this is especially interesting if the angel is Yahushua HaMashiach. Um, now, this is where we were going to connect the dots, the dots. Not tonight, this will be a few weeks from now, but we see this in Genesis 21, 1. The Masoretic reads, Yahuwah visited Sarah. When Elohim and his angels appears to Abraham to announce the birth of Yitzhak, the text implies a hidden visit to Sarah. However, uh, oh, but but then we see that Yahuwah personally visits Sarah at a later time, right? Okay, so that's where a lot of the the, the discussion is being based around. All right. Well, th- then we get this. This is this is where it gets really interesting. This comes from Philo, uh, Philo of Alexandria. He was a contemporary of the first century, you know, apostles of Yahushua Mashiach, of Paul, so on and so forth. And this is the the. He he was easily the most influential Jewish, what we call Hellenistic philosopher. If you want to buy into the Hellenism, I used to at one time, I no longer do, but whatever. Uh that he explicitly read the account of Yitzhak's birth as referring as referring to divine conception. He believed that an important philosophical mystery in uh that there was a an important philosophical mystery to be had regarding the story of Isaac's birth. Yitzhak represents joy. His name literally means laughter because he is one with the power behind the universe, according to Philo, all right? Um, and this is actually, and so just hold on to something here. According to Philo, Yitzhak is literally Elihim's son and not Abraham's. All right, so this is what he says. When, happy, when happiness, that is Yitzhak, was born, she says in the pious exaltation, Yahuwah has caused me laughter. So she is Sarah, Yahuwah has caused me laughter, and whoever shall hear of it shall rejoice with me. Open your ears, therefore, O ye initiated, and receive the most sacred mysteries. Wait a second. <laughs> Was Philo initiated into the mysteries? It seems that like he suggests he's saying that. He's not suggesting, he's saying that right here. But let's just, let's, let's not get det- uh, detracted here. Uh, let's keep uh, distracted let's keep going he says laughter is joy and the expression has caused is equivalent to has begotten so philo is saying that if you're if you're, you're going to use the word has caused in the hebrew it's equivalent to has begotten that's according to philo not me so that is what is here said has much same meaning as this Yehua has begotten yitzhak all right so that's how philo interprets it that that passage that Yahuwah has begotten Yitzhak. And he says this later on in in one of his books called All the Cherubs, and he's discussing the angels. And I will bring forward as a a competent witness and proof of what I have said, the most holy Moshe, for he introduces Sarah as conceiving a son when Elohim beheld her by himself. But he represents her as bringing forth her son, Not to him who beheld her then, but to him who was eager to attain to wisdom. And his name is called Abraham. So what what he's saying again is that when the Most High, Yahuwah, entered the tent alone with Sarah, that he was able to, that she conceived a child somehow. And uh, that Yitzhak is literally the begotten son of the Most High and that Abraham is not his physical father, but his spiritual father. All right. Now, this is, it gets a little bit more interesting. Well, before I get there, okay. So uh, a guy named Howard Schwartz, a scholar of Bible and Jewish thoughts, uh, has explained Philo in this way. He says, how does Philo arrive at this explanation? He interprets Sarah Comet that, Elohim has caused me laughter to mean that Yahuwah has begotten Yitzhak which we just read. He interprets has caused to mean begotten, which we just read. And he substitutes Yitzhak for laughter, since Yitzhak means laughter, referring to Sarah's laughter in Genesis 18, 12, when the angel said that she would have a child, even though Sarah was 90 years old. So that's interesting. So it's when he enters the tent, she laughs, which is the name of the child right at the moment that he may when the, when there may have been a divine intervention well then we get to paul of tarsus our our friend shaul uh and he has something very interesting to say in his letter to the galatians chapter what chapter is this chapter 4 verse 22 in which he says this pay very close attention to this because i think there is something to be to be ver- read very deep here It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. One, the child of the slave, was born according to the flesh. Wait, what? That would be Ishmael with Hagar. He was born according to the flesh. The other, the child of the free woman, Sarah, was born through the promise, but not of the flesh. He was born through the promise. So, a, a court, now, a guy named uh, this the another guy, another yeah, biblical scholar. His name Daniel uh, Bo, Boyarin uh, writes this uh, concerning what we just read. It should be noted that in the biblical text, it is not stated that Abraham knew Sarah, his wife. After the Annunciation, that's really interesting. Now, it'll be interesting to see if we read that in the Targum. If he knew his wife, because in the Masoretic it never says that he knew her, and that's something we often read in the Bible. He knew his wife, and then they gave birth, or they conceived and gave gave birth to a child. There may have even been then a tradition that the conception of Yitzchak was entirely by means of the promise. The point would be that Hagar had sex with the man in order to conceive, but Sarah did not. Now. What I find particularly interesting about this is that I I was reading a Jewish website and uh, great information on it. It's called Torah.org. I I go there to to really understand their, their thought process. And they, particularly, they pointed out, they were the ones that bring attention to Paul. They said that because Paul was pushing this concept of Yitzhak and that he was a divine conception, and then connecting it to Yehusha Hamashiach as being a divine conception, it is said that um, uh, let, let me see. Oh, this is what they say. Their, their actual quote: It says, ironically, Paul's adoption of, of Philo's reading and his application of the concept to uh, Yehusha likely sealed its fates among Jewish interpreters the New Testament traditions of Yehusha's Yahush- birth through the Ruach Hakodesh rendered any such idea uh, anathema, even as applied to Yitzhak and even without the connotations of divinely familiar from Christian theology. What they're saying is, is that when Christianity came along, uh, they basically junked the entire idea that Yitzhak was a child of promise through Yahuwah, that he was spiritual, that the children of Israel Israel were a spiritual heritage because that's the entire point that Paul makes in Romans and his other books. That, that you're not that there's there, there's this fleshly people, but there's a spiritual people, and it comes to the child of promise. According to the Jews, there's saying they believe that very thing, but they ditched it when Paul came along because they hated the guy so much. They hated him and you know Yahushua Mashiach, and they made a lot of changes. And we also know that at the same time, they ditched the entire Genesis six theory of the angels like the, guys like the book of enoch was a jewish book it was written well it wasn't i mean it was written by enoch but it was uh, immensely popular amongst judaism of the first century and uh, as was jubilees and others and they basically junked the entire uh angels having sex theory because uh, the same thing there were too many connections to be made so i found that interesting now before handing it back to michael um I have one more here to point out. This comes from the writings of Abraham, which very rarely lets me down. I love this book so much. This is the same scene uh, that we see being played out. And hopefully you're all still with me. This comes from chapter 115, and here's what it says. When they had eaten the angels, one of the holy men said unto me, We shall return to thee nine months hence, and behold, at that time, Sarah shall bear a son. So nine months, guys. Like, what (laughs) what happens in nine months, right? So the, 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 the countdown clock has just begun. Now, Sarah was listening at the door of the tent, and when she heard these words, she laughed within herself, knowing that she was past the age of bearing, and I also was very old. But the holy man of Elohim rebuked her. Now, keep in mind, this is one man here, right? It's not the, the three of them. kind of. But the holy man of Elohim rebuked her, saying, is anything too hard for Yahuwah? Surely, when we return here in nine months hence, Thou shalt bear a son. Whereupon the three holy men of Elohim entered with me into Sarah's tent and blessed her. Now, oh, and I'll repeat, I'll get back to verse five in a second, but here's here's the the kicker. And the ruach Hakadesh fell upon Sarah in mighty power. The power comes from Yahuwah the Most High. We see the father and the mother both represented here. The Ruach Hakadesh fell upon Sarah in mighty power and the blessing. And she conceived according to the word of the man of Elohim. It says she conceived right there in the tent. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to be vulgar, but I don't think Abraham and Sarah were having sex in front of the angels. It seems to me like this is stating that uh, Yitzhak truly was a uh, spiritually uh, gifted um, a child and that this is an Old Testament kind of um, Yahushua HaMashiach uh event going down here. And um I'll kind of just leave that for you guys to discuss discuss afterwards. That was uh this was all like kind of mind blowing to me this week because I'm digging into this. I was not going into this expecting to find you know how the, the bread trail crumbs work. This is what I discovered and uh, we can discuss it later. Back to you Michael.
1: <laughs> all right. Um a lot of great comments in the chat and no, all you want to check those out we'll possibly open it up later. Um and if you continue on that path, maybe make a separate video so people don't get lost in the, in the Targum um, video part of it. Um, okay, so number 12. Um, KGV says, therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Now let's, let's start laughing here, guys. Um, so, you know, laughter becomes a thread that links. 17 18 19 and 21 of genesis so abraham left sarah laughed. yah questions sarah about her laughter sarah denies laughing lot's son-in-law laughed next chapter sarah comments on yah causing her to laugh sarah declares that all who hear is isaac's birth will laugh with her and ishmael laughed with isaac and obviously we, we talked about that before that isaac means laughter as well um so what do you guys make of that these four chapters all about laughter interesting um Another commentary from my wife, Um, she was saying maybe Sarah laughed because she didn't know about the promise in the last chapter. Abraham knew they were angels, while Sarah thought they were just regular men. What do you think about that? Um, Number 14, so is anything too hard for the Lord? And I'm using the KGV for a reason. At the appointed, at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So I wrote a commentary that's they did that reading appointed time in Genesis 18-4 to mean the next holy day as in Leviticus 23-4. So what they're saying is Yah spoke to Abraham on the coat to promise that Isaac would be born on Passover. What do you guys think? I, I mean, there's definitely an appointed time here. Um, I mean, you know, maybe if you're a Christian, you just read right through that, but this appears to be a holy day. Um, what do you guys make about that? I, I think it's very possible. Um, a cross reference on this one that uh, says Jeremiah. Uh, so this is about is anything too hard for the Lord? So, Ah Lord God, behold, Thou hast made the heaven and the earth by Thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for Thee. So just another cross reference about there's nothing too hard for Him. He can do whatever He wants. Um, Jeremiah says so. He made the heaven and earth by His great power and a stretched out arm. And as we read it in Genesis, um he they will return at the appointed time, and she'll she'll have a son. Amazing, praise ya. Uh number seventeen in the paragraph. And the Lord said with his word, I cannot hide from Abraham that which I am about to do. And it is right that before I do it I should make it known to him, for Abraham is to be a great and mighty people, and through him shall all peoples of the earth be blessed. Uh trying to <laughs> decipher this one. Um, but Sarah's response to Yah's announcement. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, Now that I am past the age of childbearing and my husband is an old man, is pleasure to come my way again. Yah's response to Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh and say, Am I really going to have a child now that I am old? Sarah's response to God, I did not laugh. Yah responds, Oh yes, you did. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that, but I thought that was interesting what they're pointing out there. Um, 20 is my longest one. I'll, I'll do that. And then I'll have just a little bit left and we'll open it up. Um, and the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And because their sin is very grievous. So this was a cool word study. So because of the cry is what I'm focusing on. And Isaiah 15, 5, my heart cries out for Moab. And we'll find out next chapter. That's the children of Lot, Lot's daughters. Um, his fugitives are as far as Zoar. We've talked about that city and Eglath Shalishia, for they go up to the ascent of Luhith, weeping. Indeed, on the road to horonam they raise a cry of distress over their collapse. So, in this verse, and the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Same cry that the children of Moab, the children of Lot's daughters, do during their collapse. They raise a cry of distress. Another similar one, Ezekiel, this is a summary of grief of Tyre. So, the talking about Tyre. Um, 27 27 your wealth your wares your merchandise your seamen your sailors your repairs of leaks your dealers and merchandise and all your men of war who are in you with all your contingent that is in your midst will fall into the heart of the seas on the day of your overthrow at the sound of the cry or the cry of your distress or because of the cry of your sailors the past your lands will shake so you know i'm sure there's there's definitely a cry for righteousness and When you're in covenant, but there's also this cry of distress for Sodom and Gomorrah in this verse, for the children of Lot's daughters, Moab, and then Tyre. These, you know, they're they're crying about their destruction. So I thought that was interesting cross reference there in word study. Um, Palestinian says, and the Lord said to the ministering angels, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah, because they oppress the poor, and the decree that whosoever giveth a morsel to the needy shall be burned with fire, is therefore great, and their guilt exceedingly weighty again just highlighting the oppressing the poor we know about homosexuality but it's the poor part um you know I've talked about the the other um scenarios of Sodom I just have a few here they might be repeats but I I tried not to do that again but Ezekiel says that Sodom's iniquity was pride Sodom had plenty of bread and careless ease but Sodom did not help the poor and the needy the people of Sodom were haughty and committed abomination so Yahweh removed them Jeremiah 23 condemns the prophets of Jerusalem for becoming like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and that they committed a horrible thing, they committed adultery, they walked in lies, they strengthened the hands of the evildoers, and they did not return from their wickedness, they didn't repent. And finally, Lamentations 4 judged the iniquity of Jerusalem that led to the Babylonian captivity as greater than the sin of Sodom that led to its destruction in an instant. I mean, that's pretty serious. So, uh, Judge the iniquity of Jerusalem that led to the Babylonian captivity as greater than the sin of Sodom. And, you know, if you remember, I want to say it's Paul, or it might have been Yeshua, that, you know, if they don't accept your message, you go into the next town, it would be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so, I'm going to add this. Sources tell us that the residents of Sodom... Had decree that whoever would give a morsel of bread to the needy would be burned with fire. Wow. And we've talked about that in the chat recently that these cities are punishing people for feeding the homeless. They had made a pact together not to entertain guests from the outside. Interesting. But only to steal from them. They did not want anyone who was not rich to remain in the city. Wow. Interesting. Um, so some additional sources on Sodom. Um They contrasted Abraham with Noah, noting that Noah did not shield his generation and did not pray for them as Abraham did for this. For as soon as Yah told Abraham in Genesis eighteen twenty, the cry of Sodom is great, immediately in verse 23, he drew near and he countered God with more and more words until he implored them that if 10 righteous were found there, he would grant atonement to that generation. So he tried to save these people where Noah didn't. What do you guys make about um, Abraham at least tried, you know, tried to... Uh, Plea for them, ask for mercy. Um, they also taught that some viewed the people of Sodom as embracing a of philosophy of what's mine is mine. So the Mishnah taught that there are four types of people. This was interesting. One who says what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. This is a neutral type. Some say this was the type of Sodom. Um, one who says what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. This is is, is an unlearned person. Um, the third one, one who says what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours. This is a pious person. And finally, and one who says what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. That is a wicked person. Um, I'll stop there. I only have a few left and then we'll open it up. To
0: yeah, I don't have a lot either left. I There was a couple interesting observations here. One is in verse 17 and According to the Aramek Targum, the context has the one angel who has just talked to Sarah uh, or told of the tidings of Yitzchak to come. He ascends to heaven. And then Yahuwah said with his word, I cannot hide from Abraham that which I'm about to do. And it is right that before I do it, I should make it known to him. Now, that's I find that really fascinating that the, the fact that he felt that. Yahuwah felt that he wanted to make it known to Abraham. And, you know, we we hear things like, you know, which can be found in scripture, you know, that he makes it known to his prophets and that kind of stuff. Well, I was thinking of the book of Enoch, actually. And I'm not going to read this whole passage. You guys know what I'll be referring to. This involves Michael and Gabriel and Raphael. Again, interestingly enough, the three angels that were supposedly accredited with maybe being these three. Uh, it's Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel, and Uriel, and they're standing up at the gates of heaven, and they're looking down at the earth, and it says they see the quantity of blood being shed on the earth, and they, uh, they're you know basically the uh, Azazel and Samjaza and you know a lot of them, and they take on the the wives and the giants and so on and so forth, and it's awful, and they go, they go before uh yahuwah at his his throne to report all this and they're they're just going down the list of all the things that has come up to them and it says and they say and now behold the souls of those who are dead cry out so that the, they're even hearing the cries of the dead in sheol and it says and complain even to the gate of heaven they're groaning as sins nor can they escape from the unrighteousness which it is committed on earth and this is the the that really struck me, thou knowest all things before they exist. Thou knowest these things, and what has been done by them. Yet that thou does not speak to us. What on account of these things ought we to do to them? So these angels, these top-notch angels, Michael, Uriel, uh, uh Raphael, Gabriel, they're they're going before the throne and saying, All these things are happening on the earth, and you know all these things, you know everything that happens. But you're not telling us about them. We're totally in the dark. And it's just interesting to see these angels expressing these kind of frustrations, you know, before the throne. Uh, They're having open communication, similar to how we see Abraham talking with uh, Yahuwah or the presence of Yahuwah um, through the word and, you know, basically, uh, you know, bartering in a way. I mean, I don't want to. uh, stereotype, which is, I guess, I'm. Well, I say that I'm about to do it. If you've ever been to the Middle East uh, and encountered a good salesman, there, a good person who barter[s] for the price of an object, you know that you're not going to come out on top. Like they're, they're going to get their money's worth, especially if you want that item um, more more than the money's worth. Like you're going to be paying extra for it. And uh, Abraham comes across to me as an excellent uh, uh, barter. And it's just interesting to see his I always find this chapter fascinating to see his the way he communicates with the father. I mean, I I don't even communicate with that. I I don't try to barter with him. But Abraham was apparently in that position. Uh, So that's just interesting to note. And there's a reference once again, the writings of Abraham, because I always find this book so fascinating. And this is, again, contextually where he is discussing about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah with uh with these two angels and and the presence of yahuwah and in verse uh, it says this so this is the one of the uh oh yahuwah yahuwah is speaking here and he says this but thou abraham remain here in prayer so they're saying okay uh well let me backtrack up so abraham asked suppose 10 righteous shall be found there right and, and he and he said yahuwah says i will not destroy it for the sake of 10 okay but thou, Abraham, remain here in prayer and fasting until my messengers return unto thee, for if ten righteous can be found in the land, I shall gather out those righteous who are found there, and thou shalt be caught up uh, of the earth to call down, and thou shalt be called up of the earth to call down fire and brimstone upon the land by an holy ordinance inasmuch as thou art a priest and a king forever after the order of the most high Elohim. That would be the order of the Chilzedek, Having the right of the firstborn. So there's the firstborn. Some of you guys were talking about that in the um, in discussion, which have come down from the fathers to exercise absolute authority over thy posterity, even the right of life and death under the di- direction of the Holy one. So according to this, it was Abraham who was expected to call upon the fire. To have destroyed. He didn't want to, but apparently he was the one to pray for it to happen. So that's really interesting. And then it's and then even more fascinating is the follow-up verse. Yahuwah says, Nevertheless, remember that this authority can only be exercised under the direction of heaven. For when any man exerciseth his priesthood contrary to the will of heaven, his priesthood is forfeited. This is the Melchizedek priesthood. His authority passeth away, and he can call upon the powers of heaven to accomplish no work from that day forward. That's actually pretty terrifying to think about. But that's actually prophetic for Yahushua Mashiach, that he he can be our high priest, and he can continue to work on our behalf and be our advocates, um, our ambassador, our king, so on and so forth, and uh, exercise authority because he, uh, according to this, his priesthood was never forfeited uh, because he did everything according to the will of heaven. Nothing was contrary to the will of heaven. So uh, I think I'm going to end that there. Yeah, I think that's it. So Michael, you go and finish up and I reading some of those comments, I think (laughs) there's going to be some strong opposition or perhaps some discussion to what was said. And I'll be eager to hear everyone's thoughts. Uh, Back to you, Michael, go and finish it up.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so let's please get some discussion it was it was great comments in the chat um i have a little bit more than i thought but not much um 21 says i will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come up unto me and if not i will know so that's the, that's genesis 18 21. um so i wanted to focus on i will go down now so when scripture reports that yah intended to descend as in this thing, it signals that he's he's gonna punch humanity so in genesis 11 the Lord came down to see, um, let us go down there and confuse their language. And then also here. So when he comes down, he's checking it out <laughs> before um, he, he judges humanity. Um, I thought that was interesting. Um, so Palestinian, a little bit different. Uh, I will now appear and see whether as the cry of a damsel torn away, which ascendeth before me, they have made completion of their sins or whether they have made an end of their sins. And if they have wrought repentance, shall they not be as innocent before me? And as if not knowing, I will not punish. Um, so way different, of course, but I uh, just wanted to highlight that. Um, so I'm hearing this verse that was really interesting, and it kind of goes with what we were I was talking about last time, and I think this is in Joshua as well. But the people of Sodom issued a proclamation that anyone who gave a loaf of bread to the poor needy would be burned. Lot's daughter, Pelot, Pelotit, the, the wife of Magnets of Sodom, saw so a poor man on the street and was moved with compassion. Every day when she went out to draw water, she smuggled all kinds of provisions to him from her house and her pitcher. The men of Sodom questioned how the poor man could survive. When they found out, they brought her out to be burned. She cried out to God to maintain her cause, and her cry ascended before the throne of glory. And Yah, and Yah said, I will go down now. Um, and this is in Joshua, too. I made sure to get that as well. It's not just this commentary that this... Um, daughter was also there so i'm not sure if it was this one no it might have been the next chapter but basically genesis only talks about two daughters but jasher adds this other one that was righteous and died for the cause, basically uh trying to help help the poor in sodom um okay so number 23 abraham drew near and he said wilt thou also destroy the wicked uh destroy the righteous with the wicked um and i just came to bed, I know drawing near is a priestly term too, when you're drawing near. Um, Let's talk about cross-reference five. Um, Basically, Father's going to judge righteously. So, roam about through the streets of Jerusalem and look and take notice and seek in her public squares. If you can find a person, if there's just one who does justice, who seeks honesty, then I will forgive her. And although they say as the Lord lives, certainly they swear falsely. I just thought this was cool cross-reference, kind of the same scenario. He's giving mercy to even just one. If, if the city has one, he's going to do it even in Jeremiah. Um, Palestinian 24. Perhaps there are 50 innocent persons within the city who pray before thee, ten for every city of all the five cities of Sodom, Amora, Adma, Zeboam, and Zoar. Wilt thou in thy displeasure destroy not forgive the country on account of the fifty innocent ones. Right here. Um, now, as we study Abraham's intercession for Sodom, we notice that he's, he does not ask for Elohim to simply save the righteous of Sodom, but he begs for the entire city to be saved. And we've talked about that. What do you guys make about that where Noah like, didn't do anything? Um, just got. I mean, he, you know, obviously he was obedient, but he didn't plead for the people um, where Abraham did. And Abraham, and here's why. So this is what this commentary said about that. Why does Abraham not simply ask for the righteous to be saved? Why not just take the 50 and you know head out? Because he is hoping that there are enough righteous that they will one day lead the others to proper repentance. Now we can also understand why Abraham stopped at 10. Now this is their opinion. For any less, then that would have a slim chance of making a serious impression on the whole community. And this is where the Jewish concept of minion comes from. 10 is the minimum number of people for public prayer. So why 10? Uh, what do you guys think about that? And you know I think it's admirable that Abraham did that, you know um okay, so this is my last one real quick okay so twenty five says that be far from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked that be far from thee shall not judge shall not the judge of all the earth do right, and let's end on a good note. you know we had some heated discussions in the chat, but let's end on a good note. These are verses of yah judging so. In Psalms, you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat upon the throne as the righteous judge. Psalms again affirms that there is a God that judges in the earth. Judge of the earth. Deuteronomy says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Psalms again loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Executes righteousness and acts of justice for all who are oppressed. He will maintain the cause of the poor and righteous, the right of the needy. Executes justice for the oppressed, and finally, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plummet. Um, that's all I got. I hope you guys enjoyed eighteen. I guess hand off the Noel, and then we'll hand it off to you guys.
0: Yeah, well, you hand the baton to me. I'm just handing it to the group. I hope you guys enjoyed that study, and um, I, it, it's just amazing how how much rich texture there is in just you know just one chapter, and I, I know that. Michael and I looked at this from certain angles, and I'm sure there's so many more that can be looked at. And that's what's incredible about uh, the word of Elohim, that the more I read from it year after year after year, just the more I discover and learn, and unexpectedly, right, the things I never, never expected to find. So handing over to you guys, what do you guys think? Um, there was, as Michael said, there was a little bit of heated discussion there for a, a while, a few minutes, while I was Discussing some of what the Jewish sages were talking about yet. Um, yeah, So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that
2: So yeah, hey, it's me. I had to figure out how to get to the unmute really quick. So yeah, I um, I thought it was really interesting and listening to have a commentary about Isaac I was just processing it through and I think there was something there had to have been something going on there and would be curious to see what that missing text is but as Noel was reading it, I was just kind of processing it in my head with the other scriptures. And I was thinking how um there's many scriptures like Colossians 1, 15 to 21, which talks about Yahusha being the firstborn, and then Revelation 1, 5 calls him the firstborn of the dead. So that might not be like like literal firstborn. But then the one that gets me is the um John three sixteen, where Yahusha, and this is in reference to Isaac being like the literal son of Elohim um, in John three sixteen, and I'm looking at the Hebrew gospel and it reads actually pretty interesting because it says for El loves the world so much that he gave his own and this part is in bold where it says this his only son dash one alone begotten all of that is bold so it like emphasizes that Yahusha is his only son, one alone begotten to the world in order that he who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So um, that, that part, you know, that in those are, you know, Yahusha's words. So unless it's like a mistranslation or, or something there, but that kind of goes um, against Isaac being um, a son of Elohim there. So I thought that was interesting, but other than that, there was so much that you guys read from that I'm gonna have to listen to this again because there was a lot of interesting th- things that came up that I, I I want to dig further into. But those were my my thoughts on that.
0: Can anybody hear me right now? I oh, can hear you. Yep. Okay, I got kicked off the internet, so I was um, I heard the beginning of what Mary was talking about, and then I didn't hear the end of it. So. Here's here's my thoughts on this. A couple, I think it was last week that I read from Second Enoch. And I read from the ending of Second Enoch where it talked about the first uh, Melchizedek being Noah's nephew, uh, the, the, the son of Ner, who is Noah's brother. And it, it talked about how Ner did not see his wife for upwards of a year. And then he shows up and he sees his wife very pregnant and delivering a child and he protests and she's like, I don't know what happened. I just got pregnant and, uh, you know, had the baby and the baby, you know, ascends to heaven. So, uh, uh, well, the baby uh, d- didn't ascend to heaven right away, but it happened soon. And this was apparently the first to Now the implications of this is that it was, she wasn't a virgin, but it was an immaculate type of conception that, that there was a divine, uh, intercession from yahuwah the most high and this child was born and i don't know if that kind of went past everybody back then um maybe it's because people were just writing it off like oh this is fiction or whatever and i was taking it as serious i think this is legit Um, i think that there are multiple cases of this perhaps happening of this divine intervention throughout history i mean adam and eve is just one obvious example um but uh then noah would be another very interesting example. And I don't think that diminishes at all from Yahushua or his works, or it does not threaten the New Testament. Um, it actually in my mind emboldens it and makes it more of a of a ongoing tradition. And um, nor does it diminish Yehusha Yehu- Hamashiach being the only begotten. I I would be interested to hear that case from anybody. Now, I'm not saying that Yitzhak uh, was not um brought forth from Abraham, but um I was I have to admit, I was really taken back with this idea that um, that all the children of Yasharel is um, is a spiritual um, kind of a a lineage that uh, starts with Yitzhak. That really struck me as a lot of bells were going off in my head from different passages I read in scripture. So, you know, but that's I don't have a dog in the fight. And um, if uh, I so I missed out about three minutes of dialogue there, if anybody else had anything to say.
2: Yeah um I just wanted to say thank you so much. I'd never heard of that or considered it before either. Um but I guess um I don't I don't think it dimin- diminishes for, from Yeshua either because um I guess like we all came from the most high so whether through intercourse or not. So for me Isaac wasn't in the beginning with father. You know, Sarah wasn't a virgin like Mary. Isaac wasn't, you know, the messiah so there's still a difference and for me yeshua coming into the the flesh you know why couldn't father just you know open her womb um it seems to me that he could and that doesn't necessarily contradict you know the purpose of yeshua so that's kind of the way i'm seeing it and thank you
0: yeah but i I mean when i just so you guys know i mean again i I don't have a dog in this fight like it, it it's either Yitzhak is the son, the physical son of abraham or he's the spiritual son um, and you know i just present the 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 idea out there i mean this isn't something i came up with this is something i read in multiple texts and it just kind of it was a breadcrumb trail i followed i found it really interesting uh, but when i think of yehusha as the only begotten son i think of him as literally being the only begotten son way before mary and joseph like at the very beginning he was the only begotten son of the father Um, and um, so you know that's just how I think about that
3: okay am I here can anybody hear me I can hear you okay Uh, from my studies that I've done as far as the particular word son of Yahuwah there's only two uh, and that is Adam and Yahusha. Now, I'm not contradicting that there was definitely spiritual intervention in all these other things, but I believe it was a healing process of whether it was uh, the woman's being uh, infertile or whatever the problem was, that the spiritual intervention was just a healing process. And uh, even up to the possibility of them being able to take the seed of particular father, whether it be Abraham, whoever, and actually plant it into her womb. Uh, I, I'll buy that. But as far as any of these other being actual sons of the father, no, uh, because scripture, from my understanding and all my studies, there's only two, and that's Adam and Yahushua.
1: So a bunch. Josh said, someone asked me recently how much time I think we have left, You guys think. Josh Lynn said about the failed mission of the two angels at Jacob's ladder was very interesting. Yeah, I want to definitely read more of that in the Targum. Noel says, I can't hear anybody. I have to end this. Manager just cut out. I'm curious about the slave trade, as I've heard many different theories myself about who's in the Americas. Very little must study, sort of translation. Um so Noel's unmuted and we can't hear him.
0: Okay, um, well um now, now? now we can hear now we can hear you yeah yep, yep. yeah i'm coming in and out of the internet it does this as you guys know like i just said it does this after it drives me crazy and i don't know how to fix this why it does this uh but all right so okay talking about how much time we have left that that's one of the things i i i, I don't like timelines because um it, it it's if I come up with a timeline, I will be wrong. And then I will be accused of being a false prophet. And then I will, you know, and then I will lead people to despair and it will pro- disprove the whole theory because, you know, like, I just, I have no clue. Um, and just so you guys, again, know, I, I feel like according to the timeline, if you just add up all the numbers in scripture uh, that we are in the eighth great day. Okay. The eighth day, that would be like, um, that would be Sunday. Right, because Sabbath would be the seventh, uh, the seventh day, so we would be on a new week. We would be on a Sunday, the first day of the week of a new week, a whole new week of history. That's seven thousand years, people. And in the eighth great day, that's a thousand years. And people probably don't like to hear that. I have no clue uh, when the thousand years are going to end. So if I'm advocating that the millennial kingdom is a thousand years, that already happened. The question is, at what point did it come to an end, and how many years? Let's be really liberal with the numbers and say. The Maleo kingdom ended 500 years ago. Um, and uh, that means we've got 500 years left in the eighth great day. So, uh, I, I, again, it, what if a short season is a is thousand years? I mean, I, that nobody probably wants to hear that answer, but it means that every one of us will die and our children will die and New Jerusalem will not have come down yet. Okay, that, just throwing that out there. I think we all need to be prepared to live the rest of our lives for Yah, and not expect this to all come to a head in the next two or three years. Uh, you know, maybe agenda 2030 will be it though. I really don't know. Um, and um, let's see. Oh yeah. What was the other one? Uh, oh, the, yeah, the failed mission of the two angels. I, I tried to, to look into that and, and maybe I, I will because, you know, we've got like 10 more chapters before we get to Yako's ladder. And it brings that up. And that's what I quoted from. And um, maybe I could find something on that, where that's coming from. I have never read that anywhere else. And that has my fascination as well. On the slave trade, uh, curious about the slave trade. So I, I'm not saying that there was never a ship that came from Africa. Um, I, I really do. You know, being the skeptical sort, I really question that whole narrative especially when we could find that there were people of all different colors in America in the quote unquote new world. And that we have photographic evidence of black native Americans in New York state, in Salt Lake city, Utah area, all the way to California. We have the Miwok Indians living in Yosemite national park who were black and they don't show you that in the museums. They want to show you the typical Brown skinned native American uh, but there were Black Miwok Indians living there, which actually lends a lot of credence to more credence to the idea that uh, uh, California was originally black, and that you know Queen um, Queen uh, uh, I want say Queen Latifah, that's <laughs> up, right. I uh, wrote a whole paper on her. It's getting late, but uh, but you know the Queen of California, the original Amazonian women, um, that they were you know black, and um, so. I think that what happened was, is that, you know, it's kind of like a scene when the lights go out and then uh, everyone scrambles to get in position. The lights go back on. When the lights went back on, the the African-Americans or the blacks were in slavery. The Native Americans were being rounded up and putting on plantations. I mean, they both got screwed over uh, for the white man. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I also have the, the question of did the Black people know they were in slavery. And I know that that sounds like, like a, the most retarded thing to say. People will hear that and go, like, what are you talking about? How, do you, how, how in the world could you come up with the thought that they did not know they were in slavery? I suspect that a lot of them did not know they were in slavery until somebody came along and said, hey, you're in slavery. We just freed you. Um, and the reason being is that the, the system of slavery that you see set up in the, according to the official narrative on the plantations, is exactly how society is set up today. Dun, dun, dun. And how many people, if you were to go out and ask if they're a slave, they would be like, no, I'm not a slave. I'm a free American. They have no clue that they're slaves. They were all slaves on plantations. And um, society is set up that way. And so I kind of think that they were, um, a lot of them didn't know. Uh, kind of like we see the same thing in Jasher, that the, the sons of Yasheril. All sold themselves into slavery uh, to Pharaoh, except for one. The Levites did not. They were the only ones who were not sold into, uh, did not sell themselves into slavery, and uh, that is why Moses and Aaron were free to walk around. Pharaoh had no authority to make him go in the fields, and but the others, uh, they had to go in the fields and work. And um, so, anyways, all that to say, I think I just I have a lot of questions about the official narrative and how it ended up that way.
1: There's great convo going on, Noel. We want your opinion. Oh, we lost you again? You're not unmuted. Oh, uh,
0: I'm i here. Hey, okay, there you
1: are. You're back, you're back, you're back. Um, Basically, the discussion about how we're not in the Great Eighth Day. We're kind of after the Sukkot. We're in the winter after Sukkot for the new beginning. Does that make sense? What do you think about that? The short yeah. season could be the winter after it instead of the Great Eighth Day kind
0: of thing. Oh, that could be. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, how would that work out, though? I mean, if you're using, so somebody take me through that then, okay? So if we're dealing with actual years, and there is a literal thousand-year reign, uh, that is a, there's a continuation, like there, there's no break in the week, right? There is a thousand years, a thousand years, you know, add up to 6,000. And then the, the next thousand is the day of, of, of Sabbath, of the Millennial Kingdom. That comes to an end. And then we are past that. Uh we're not in a new week. Like, has there been a break to the weeks? So someone take me through that. How does that work? So, you wanna you wanna say something? Uh, I Maybe mean, I'll just roughly speak to it. I don't I know exactly, but um
1: I think she's just just take your typical year, you know, after Sukkot that six months of winter until the new season so she, i think they're basically logged in on laptop so i can check um so, yeah i mean there's a lot of mystery on the greatest day we don't know maybe there is a short season between the last sakote and the greatest day kind of thing. okay there she is i can hear her now um
4: yeah i mean literally this just popped in my head while y'all are talking about it right now so I just can't imagine that the eighth great, eighth great day would be full of evil and deception. So um, I don't know who said what that made me think of it. But yeah, after tabernacles tabernacles is a reflection of millennial kingdom. Yes, you know, we get the eighth great day at, is at the end of tabernacles. But we also know that each east is being fulfilled separately. Well, the eighth great day is a feast unto itself. So it's possible, I don't know, I'm just throwing it out there, that there's that winter season, right? At The end of the year, short, a short season after tabernacles, that we might be in, and then we go into what would be the fulfillment of the eighth great day, the final feast fulfillment, I don't know.
0: I think that's a great thought. Uh, but here is the one question I had. Is there a break in the week? Because if 7,000 years have come to completion, uh, we're just assuming at this point, we're assuming that the Milo kingdom has happened um, and that we're not still in it. You would naturally then roll over to the next day, to the eighth day, then to the ninth day, the 10th day, 11th day. So if the eighth great day lands literally on the 8,000 year mark, uh, just as the sabbath day would rest on the seven thousand year mark and you know that six to seven thousand years and so on um it, i mean keep in mind though a thousand years is a long time i mean a lot can happen in a thousand years and so i don't know I, you know when i say that we're in the eighth great day it is a it is a day where some amazing things happen like you know salvation is complete right because You know, New Jerusalem comes down. Sin is abolished. Death is, you know, thrown into a lake of fire. Some, you know, incredible things happen. Um, But, you know, I don't think that's going to take a thousand years to uh, accomplish that either. I mean, it's it it seems to me that it could happen. Let's say that the eighth great day is referring to eight thousand years. But the eighth great day is a, a literal day that happens. That could happen at the 600 year mark. It could happen at the 500 year mark. It could happen at the 900 year mark. Right. Like it doesn't. Of the eighth grade day, if that makes sense, if anyone's following me. Um, so
4: I guess I take the eighth grade day to kind of almost be like our, you know, when it can we convert back into like this a time of eternity. But yes, yeah, so I see what you're saying that there has to be a fulfilled, fully fulfilled 7,000 quote unquote literal like millenniums or days. Um, but as we've been, you know, look, looked into it, this it almost seemed like this 7,000, you know, if it's the the millennial kingdom, I mean, wasn't at one point people saying it was started, possibly started in the year, what we think is the year of 5,500 or something?
0: Yeah, yeah. In, the fi- in the 500s, yeah.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, that's, we're already kind of, we're we're not on an exact thousand year reckoning anywhere or it's just because, you know, they're hiding stuff from us and they've jacked up our history.
0: But, um well, well I, I, I actually think one of the, now it, it's probably breaking up on my end. So if you guys can hear me clearly, great. If not, let me know. Cause I'm not sure if Lisa finished or not. I don't want to interrupt anybody. No, um, I just, Okay, so what one of the things I'm if you know there a lot of you have you've looked into the idea that there are a thousand missing years. You know, you've looked at the the I, the J, the X, right? I think amazingly is so when I started this journey, I was thinking maybe we were literally a thousand years removed from Messiah, which was a bit of a mind trip. Um, but now I'm looking at it and I think the the dates are pretty accurate. I think we're about two thousand years removed um i say that because if um you know, I, I you know i there's a lot of questions i have i need to work on this more but a lot of us are coming kind of collectively to this idea that the millennial kingdom ended in the 1500s and that the the renaissance afterwards was um a, a total rebellion against the the dark ages which it was i mean according to the official narrative it was and uh, you know, and so as we look into the, the the tech that was used, these would have been, you know, the artwork, all that kind of stuff. The the creation of these buildings, they they would have been using the same sort of technology that you know there was like a reset, but they were continuing, and then there was of course another reset, and another. There were probably multiple resets until they decided to disband that whole thing. So what I'm saying is that we could be 500 years removed from the Millennial Kingdom um, at this point in time.
4: Well, here's the other thing I was kind of kicking around, just the calendar ideas and things I've seen in researching the calendars, that there was a time when they never really reckoned like the dark months of winter. They only had, you know, month names for like the productive harvest months. And then winter was just winter. It was just the season that they didn't really reckon. And so if you think about it, so if we've got, you know, first through the seventh months are all... We you know feasts or harvest is happening. and then so then you've got you know the eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, and if you want to go there, the possible thirteenth month, that's five almost or sixth quote unquote months of darkness or short season that that are kind of undefined in a sense, if you want to parallel you know the idea of calendars or something.
0: Okay, so that's really fascinating. If you can, what you just said is is really it, really fascinating. If you can get me wherever you research this, if there is some sort of source that I could look at, because I would love to look at that. The idea that they did not reckon the months after, you know, Sukkot, like those months leading up to uh, to Passover, you know, the first of Nisan or whatever, uh, that they didn't reckon those as time or date whatever that would be incredibly helpful and in, to think about all this because i i could see at that point where there could be a break in the week and i was discussing just last week with pamela she was here earlier tonight she went to bed uh where she is reading the paleo hebrew and and the paleo hebrew is a game changer uh it's according to her it's so much more rich and in depth than the masoretic hebrew could ever uh, you know the the modern uh, babylonian script or whatever you want to call it can ever hope to be and like you could just write a book basically on just the first sentence of genesis of Beer Sheath and she's she was saying that it was a complete um she's you know agrees with me that it was a recreation event but that it was a complete reset like the wiping clean of everything Everything was wiped clean. And for her, that was one of the final nails in the coffin on the Lunar Sabbath theory. Because according to the Lunar Sabbath theory, the seventh day of creation is really the eighth day. And there, the day zero was really day one. Uh, but she's like, no, that the, everything was wiped clean. And there could have been any number of time before that where there was nothing reckoned. So that's, that's interesting. That if there was the Millennial Kingdom kind of ended it, and then there's going to be a reestablishing of the eighth great day. Um, as, you know, a, uh, the, or what you said, Lisa, that, that not all holidays are, I think you had said something like they're not all fulfilled you know, together at the same time. Um, so I could see how Sukkot could be fulfilled and then the 8th grade day could be fulfilled at a separate time. So that's that's all good stuff.
4: Yeah, because the way I've come to look at it, if you're looking, if you're paralleling the um, uh, harvest of the saints, right, with the harvest of crops. <laughs> so, Yehusha is the first of the first fruits, which mean which would mean any Old Testament believers. And the Old Testament believers are the barley, the fullness of the barley harvest. Then you have the like the apostles and the early disciples at the time of the if you want to say at the time of the temple destruction as quote unquote the early or hasty early ripe wheat harvest. And 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 then there was like an ongoing, you know, um, ongoing wheat harvest. After that, I guess that would to me that would possibly be you know, going into the Millennial Kingdom. And then we're like the <laughs> I say, we're the fruits and nuts that <laughs> come at the end of the year. So the fullness, the in-gathering, <laughs> I don't know. But so then, yeah, so so it, it goes in stages. The harvest is a parallel reflection of our, you know, our yearly harvest. But it, it didn't happen like literally one after the other. There was time lapses. You're That's blinking. Re- mo- okay, there you are. Okay,
1: good.
0: Good. Yeah, that's uh that's really good. Uh Lisa, I appreciate all that.
1: before it gets lost, I have to read that. And plus Lisa, that's amazing. If it, this is a huge find if that is true. Yeah, if you can get that to know, that'd be great. Um second Enoch, BB B. Manatee put second Enoch thirty-three and I appointed the eighth day also. The eighth day should be the first created after my work. It should revolve in the revolution of the seventh thousand. So that the eighth thousand might be in the beginning of a time not reckoned. And unending with neither years nor months nor weeks nor days nor hours like the first day of the week so also that the eighth day of the week might return continually now enoch all that i have told thee all that thou hast understood that thou hast seen of heavenly things and all that has seen on earth not all that i have written in books by my great wisdom all these things i have devised and created from the uppermost foundation to the lower and to the end and there's no counselor nor inheritor to my creation
0: a good find there even though it's second enoch but
1: still
0: <clears throat> everyone always says that it's like you know that was really good but you know even if it was second enoch or you know whatever it's like sigh second Enoch. but no that was really good and uh that was thank you for that find that was excellent
2: and if i can add something to that too um just like we have the the break there with the feasts and those months and if we're looking at the seventh um, you know, the 7,000th year and as as verse of a 7,000th day, you know, going on to the eighth day, we have, um, you know, day and night mentioned separately, kind of as separate entities, there was day and night. And so that transition between the seventh and eighth day could be thought of as night. And And I want to actually go back and research all the scriptures about you know, with Yahusha saying there's 12 hours of daylight, we walk in the day and, you know, just all the different things just to see if that even makes sense. But that's another angle there too, with with that being the night could be the transition.